You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. What do you want? What do I want? I want to marry Laura, that's what I want. I thought everybody knew that. Charles loves Laura. Laura likes Charles. I want to sleep with you. Wait a minute. Charles would marry Laura tomorrow. Wait a minute. (laughs) But Laura's already married to a guy called... Joan Nicklin Silver's Chilly Scenes of Winter. (laughs) Now I'm no longer alone. A comedy about people trying to connect in a disconnected world. I don't think you're that great. As a matter of fact, there's quite a few things about you that I don't like. Yeah? Name one. It's different. It's offbeat. And it's always on target. You've heard me. I love your wife. You show very good taste. It's about temptation. The Lord have mercy on your soul. Thank you. Contemplation, <laughs> adoration, and accusation. Are you seeing someone else? What? It's about deviation. Hi, Mom. And desperation. Don't worry. I'm not going to beg her. Janet, how can I get it if she won't come out of her apron? And most of all, Good night, the outrageous complications night, Laura. of Charles' never-ending infatuation. Hi, Sam. John Hurd and Mary Beth Hurt in Chilly Scenes of Winter. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Bill Ackerman. Did you know if you take yogurt and spread it on your nipples, it makes them pink? Also back with us today is Mr. Daniel Kremer. If you need any wax for your car, I recommend Turtle Wax. This week we are discussing the 1979 film Chilly Scenes of Winter. Directed by Joan Micklin Silver, the film stars John Hurt as Charles, and coincidentally enough, Mary Beth Hurt as Laura. Charles is something of a romantic fool, very foolish in fact, as he falls for Laura, who happens to be married and taking a break from her husband, Ox, played by Mark Metcalf. The movie traces their relationships' ups and downs, utilizing a fractured time structure. When we first meet Charles, his relationship with Laura already seems to be over, though he's desperate to get her back. Now, we're going to be getting into spoilers on this episode, so if you don't want anything ruined for you, go ahead and turn off the podcast and come back after you see the movie, perhaps the new, as of this recording, Twilight Time Blu-ray release. So, Bill, when was the first time you saw Chilly Scenes of Winter, or perhaps you saw it as Head Over Heels, as it was originally known? And what did you think? Okay, so the first time I saw it was maybe 20 years ago. Um, I checked it out from the county library. I had been looking for it uh, because of Danny Perry's Cult Movies 3 that has a chapter on that film. So I saw it as the Chili Scenes of Winter video cassette version. Um, I was already a fan of John Hurd from Cutter's Way. I loved it right away. Um, it reminded me of the kind of more offbeat romantic comedies that um, that I like that had like a sense of melancholy and anxiety. Like I'm thinking of something like Annie Hall or uh, Modern Romance, Albert Brooks movie. But I like the fact that the main characters attempts to be funny. Uh, they came off sometimes as awkward or strange rather than having the comic timing of a stand-up comics. So I felt like I could relate to it at times more than some of those films. Uh, not all of the, uh, not all the things that Charles does I relate to, but, but yeah, I, I loved it right away. And, uh, I also liked that it dealt with, um, I have, I have a, uh, a weakness for things that deal with the death of sixties idealism. I don't know if that's from growing up with river's edge or punk rock, but like that being kind of a, uh, kind of a backdrop of the movie was also part of what I liked about it. How about you, Daniel? 
I saw the film uh, on the old clamshell VHS release that was uh, put up by MGM in the early 80s. I mean, I came to this film at a very young age, I want to say. I mean, I, I, I got into um, kind of obscure cinema quite early. So I want to say I saw this when I was around like 14 or so, um, oddly enough. Uh, I think it was came from my, I had a Mike Saturn's like video's best guide and it was in there. I think I got it on eBay uh, way back when, like early eBay in its, in its earliest days. And also, I, I immediately uh, clicked with it. I mean, at, at that point in uh, in my life, it's kind of take on uh, this kind of uncomfortable humor, uh, or or the kind of the you know the humor of of despair, as uh, as as many critics have noted. I mean, I found really uh, quite hilarious. And and as it, as it so happens, when I began introducing the film to members of my family. So, so I have to say, Chili Seeds of Wonder is kind of a legendary movie in my, my family, uh, believe it or not. Um, because w- my, when my mom saw it, uh, I had her watch it with me at, at a certain age because I would introduce her to different films uh, that, I would, that I would encounter growing up. And uh, I remember uh, showing her that film, and, and she thought that, the, that there isn't any dinner scene, the joke's on you, uh, was like the funniest thing in the world. I just and and I, I guess I'm a chip off the old block because that's like my kind of humor as well. She began to share that just that scene with members of my family, who also thought it was funny in the same way. I mean, I guess you know, I guess I don't know, either humor runs in the family or it's just uh, something <laughs> something that's acquired. So the line in my family, there isn't any dinner. The jokes on you will immediately you'll get at least like a a, a smile from it or like you know and at most like just be, people will be in cracking up so uh, um it's uh, yes yeah, so, so it's kind of a special movie you know in regard to me uh in, in many ways 2017 is a interesting year on the projection booth because i'm covering a lot of films that i've never seen before starting to do research for them for this show so a couple weeks ago we talked about stalker and i had never really you know checked that one out this week we are talking about chilly scenes of winter and i will be honest i had never even heard of this film until you brought it up to me daniel and then kind of started the research doing this episode a few months ago just totally wasn't ever on my radar, which is weird because Crossing Delancey was on my radar. I had seen that film. I had I had heard of Invisible Child, another Joan McLean Silver film. Oh, interesting. <laughs> well, there was a great episode on uh, We Hate Movies about that particular film. So I knew of, of her work, but yeah, just never had seen Chilly Scenes of Winter. So I uh, am very glad that you brought it to my attention because it is a it's an interesting film. I like these movies where the characters will turn and talk to the camera, kind of like the Sum of Us or or um, Bill. I think you said Annie Hall, so it kind of reminds me of that, and it, it reminds me, of course, a lot of Crossing the Lancy. Um, I can see a lot of stylistic things are the same. I mean, Peter Riegert. I love Peter Riegert, so I was so happy to see him in this with the the long hair and the baby face. I was just like. Oh, little Peter Rieger. He looks younger in this than he looked in Animal House, which is kind of funny because this came out a little bit after Animal House. But I'm still not 100% sure if I, I, I am 
on board with this movie because of that uncomfortableness that you talk about. And because Charles is kind of a, I don't know if, what kind of protagonist he is. Cause there's a lot of times where he comes off really super creepy. Like when he's sitting outside of, of Laura's house and stuff, I'm just like, I don't know. Like if I'm looking at this too much from 2017 eyes and not enough from 1979 eyes or what, but I definitely see the charm of this film and I can see why you guys like it so much. Um, I mean, I think uh, what what many of the critics uh, um, and and in many of the film's early supporters, including uh, um, I want to say, uh, well, Robert Osborne, who became the host of, uh, of Turner Classic Movies for uh, for a time. I think he's retired at this point, but and as well as as Kenneth Turin, um, who became a very prominent critic later. I think what they I think I think what they were really uh, zeroing in on. In their and or, or you know really uh, tuning into with this is that it's a very unusual film by sheer virtue of the fact that uh, that we are that uh, and, and as, I, as I recently wrote in, in the in the piece I wrote for the the Twilight Time Blu-ray release uh, is that uh, it, it the film kind of it has a stock in kind of the comedy of uh, like you're looking at it like should I be really laughing at this I mean he's building an A-frame he's being a total you know creep dick and you know. And and but at, at the same time though, uh, Turin writes it will make you la- it will it will make you laugh to keep from crying, and uh, it remains uh, consistently wise and, and surprising in small and and uh, delightful ways. And I think Danny Peary, uh, who who uh, Bill mentioned earlier in his cult movies book, uh, also kind of uh, um, was focusing in on on this aspect of the film where it's like you know is this and and i think uh, as i mentioned in, in my twilight time piece uh even though joan doesn't like when i bring this up and i think she's learned to kind of like think it's interesting i think uh um ultimately it's like you know she i think i think at first she 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 kind of resisted this kind of um jewish comic uh edge of it which you know uh you know, coming from that background, you know, it's not it's not uncommon, as I wrote in the Twilight Time piece, for a rabbi to make a joke at a funeral. Um, it's not it's not uncommon for you know, for for uh, for Jewish humor to, to find something funny in something tragic or something that uh, perhaps is a little uh, by uh, Western societal standards wouldn't be deemed funny in any any traditional way it finds the humor in these things. And I think that's what makes it really interesting to me uh, is that, you know, we're it's, it's, you know, we, we have a guy who's building an A-frame house. He's building a dollhouse of his girlfriend, his uh, ex-girlfriends where she lives with her, with her, her husband and her, her stepdaughter. And he's watching her outside there, you know, uh, the stepdaughter's kindergarten or grade school or whatever. And he's doing all these um, really, um, in, in any other context, you know, we, we would really worry about. But I think I think the way that Joan frames it in the movie is that uh, we are supposed to find that there's a kind of absurd humor in in unrequited love or 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 the this kind of uh, shlemiel who's just cannot move forward in life without uh, without consummating his desire for Laura. I had a friend that uh, had a theory about relationships that a lot of them took on. There was there were two roles that most of them had: the lover and the beloved. Uh, the one that at least all relationships that failed had the lover and the beloved, and there was the one person that put more of the energy in towards the attraction, and then the one that maybe accepted that attraction. The, the thing with Chili Sins of Winter is that it feels like it's taking the notion of the of the lover, which might feel like a more righteous position when you're in it. 
uh, but pushes it towards like this uncomfortable place where uh, you can no longer empathize with all of his decisions. Um, yeah, it becomes less of a lovable eccentric, and he's at times threatening uh, to beat or even rape her. That that darkness might be why you know the film resonates with filmmakers like Martin Scorsese or Paul Schrader. Like there might be a slight whiff of Travis Bickle or Rupert Pupkin in some of the behavior, even though it's still you know ultimately a light comedy without that that menace or violence. I guess one of the reasons I'm a guest, other than having recommended the film to Mike, was that I, I recommended the film to him originally because I'm working on a book about uh, Joe Micklin Silver, and uh, in the book I think I think there's a there's a paragraph that I'm, I'm uh, that I think really hits on on something important, which is the uh, um, uh, talking about uh, an F. Scott uh, Fitzgerald quote where where uh, he defines a, a sentimental person as uh, someone who thinks things will last. And a romantic person is someone who has a desperate confidence that they won't. Talking about basically the, in the comedy of the of the romantic person, the tragedy of of the sentimental person. And you were talking about uh, the kind of the, the the theme, Bill. You were talking about the theme of de de radicalization earlier, and kind of the you know the, the children of, of the sixties. What happened to them? In Jones' previous film to this, uh, between the lines, you have the same. John Hurd character, kind of a, a an early prototype for the character he plays in Chilly Scenes, uh, and and these got these other kind of leftovers, you know, from an earlier era, and they're having a hard time re- reconciling present realities with their with the uh, with the kind of the, the halcyon days of their past of you know of the 1960s of of their radical days as a, of of uh, being radical agitators or whatever or or whatnot uh, there's a key um exchange in, in chilly scenes when uh, um peter regard's character says uh what do you want from a child her age she never went to woodstock neither did we we could have that's true look woodstock was just a bunch of people walking around in the mud looking for a place to pee what i saw the movie oh. danny peary writes this as well is that uh, uh, at one time the a romantic notion meant the the execution of a revolution or or some type of uh, or, or you know just kind of the the kind of what what the youth were after during during that earlier era but now that that, that now that kind of romantic notion is finding a, a partner with whom you can kind of uh, um, connect in that way and and when Charles finds that and has to give that up. Uh, this is kind of what you what you what you encounter is uh, what what Charles becomes, um, and uh, the kind of the inherent uh, comedy of that I think is is really what's uh, an important element to you know, to consider in the whole thing. There are all these there are all these bits of evidence about uh, the, an earlier era that that Charles and and uh, and and uh, Sam were a part of. Well, yeah, part of that has to be the music and the whole idea of the Janis Joplin that he's listening to and that seems to definitely represent that earlier time for him and that he gives that to his boss as a balm for his son who might be a homosexual and uh the way that uh who's a jerry harden plays that character i love watching him in this movie and i kind of wish there was more of him but he plays such a great out of touch older person in this and john hurt as charles you know kind of trying to help him out by giving him this 
Janis Joplin record, like here, maybe this will help your son because Mr. Patterson has no way of really connecting with his son, who is of a younger generation even than Charles, but he has really no way of connecting with Charles's generation either. So I can definitely see where you're coming from when you're talking about these kind of generational lines and this, you know, the, the Woodstock generation, even if they didn't go to Woodstock. And I love the way that the sister describes it as just a bunch of people walking around in the mud looking for a bathroom. And when they question her, she's like, I saw the movie, which ironically enough, Martin Scorsese worked on. So it's like, oh, okay. Okay, and they all agree. And the humor of that line, as well as the kind of the the, the insight of that line, is that these guys that is that Charles and Sam are basically two schlubs. They're you know they wouldn't have gone to Woodstock, but uh, but still placing them in an era, but but getting but gleaning a kind of a this uneasy comedy out of the fact that that they wouldn't have gone probably anyway. You know, holding on to that and uh, you know cr- uh, grasping it with the you know from from their cold dead dead hands. I guess you're not gonna you're not gonna pry this this uh the kind of the the identifiers of the generation away from them Uh, so i think what makes jones work in general i think very compelling is that she does find comedy in these kind of unexpected insights into these characters um in a way that i I, that that i don't really i don't really find analogous to other 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 filmmakers she's a i think a very tonal uh she's like a tonal acrobat in many ways i would call her it's sad. It makes it even worse when you consider that, you know, she's kind of going back and forth between these two men at, at one point between Ox and Charles. And when you finally meet Ox, it's like, yeah, this guy's no real catch. You know, <laughs> he's a nice enough guy and everything. He seems to treat her right, but he is again he's kind of out of touch with things and uh he's so into his work, he's so into that being an A-frame salesman. He's a very interesting character. I like that he's not a villain and that he's very shaded. All of these characters are very shaded and they all feel very, very real to me. Yeah, he's a very square hunky guy, Ox, you know, and that's that's exactly I think the the I know it's it's a kind of a comfort zone, I think, uh and in some way that he's maybe dangerously stable to her in some ways. Yeah, it seems like she kind of thrives on the being torn between being the person who is uh, the subject of Charles's affections. And she kind of wants it, but at the same time, she doesn't. Again, a great character. I mean, Mary Beth Hurt plays Laura in a, a really interesting way because she could just be this you know lofty figure but again she's very very human yeah i I love that scene when they're walking outside the the movie theater after leaving the the porn film and uh and uh you know she's like you have this exalted view of me and i hate it uh and uh you know just kind of like she feels that she's undeserving of charles's uh his overboard affections for her or his, his very overzealous, uh, um, you know, regard for her, perhaps. Uh, I find that a very, I don't know, very well observed, uh, scene in many ways because, uh, they're, they're, I know it's, it's interesting seeing, uh, heard and, and, uh, hurt the, off of these two characters, which are, which are very well defined in the novel, I think as well, their pathos to, to, you know, to the way that they play them. Yeah, I like that Laura seems happiest when uh, when Charles is maybe uh, like like slightly insulting or not as polite or fawning. Um, like I'm thinking of like when he doesn't call her on the Sunday and goes out for spaghetti with the guys, and that's when she really starts maybe becoming more attracted to him somehow. Or when she uh, like either making a snide comment about her jumping on the trampoline or. Uh, 
like when he comes in and says he's going to be going out with the guys more like she likes a little bit of pushback from him um reading rereading the novel again it was um i forgot how little she appears in it until the very end and how much of her character in the novel is more of a romantic fantasy of it and you don't really get a sense of the of the turmoil between them until nearly the very end when his his questioning becomes more of a uh a pronounced thing but it's all throughout the film that kind of obsessive neurotic paranoia that he has and all the questioning um i i, I feel like i've known people that have that tendency and I, I i don't think i'd ever seen it captured in a film before i saw this one just that irritating la- uh, lack of trust that he has yeah i think the way joan always loves whenever she's introduced this film uh, either you know, and at a screening or just in general uh, on any uh, kind of interview that, that she's granted, she will always talk about how you know people. Uh, she, I mean, her, this is her claim: people at some time in their life has loved s- someone more than that person has loved them. So that's so. I think uh, that I think that's really uh, you know the kind of the, the notion of the of a, of a of a romantic ideal. It's a perfect time to to release the the Blu-ray of the film uh, Valentine's Day because uh, um, it is a cult film. I mean, in, in a in a big way because I've, I, anyone I've met or I've encountered who has seen the film really is like gaga over it and like it's, there's like a secret brotherhood where you know just like you know if, if people know that you know the film, it's just like wow, you know that I love that film. And and uh, when Chris Wells uh, was introducing the film at IFC years back or. Er, 2014 or uh, i think around there um he was talking about how uh you know you either get two one of two reactions when when you when you mention this film one is i've never heard of it and the other one oh it's it's my favorite movie of all time one thing that i like that the film gets i feel like it gets right is um everything else in his life is is boring uh or unpleasant uh or exacerbates his melancholy i'm thinking of like the way that the workplace is shown is very mundane or you know his dealings with his mother or maybe uh pete the uh the mother's boyfriend like his guilt trips about you know paying more attention to them uh or even we mentioned janice joplin earlier like how the pop music that he is hearing it's it's both reminding him of you know that earlier time in the in the nineteen sixties, or even just you know the the lyrics of "Get It While You Can." It's you know it's it's only kind of hammering home the point that he's he's not able to get it uh, as he's driving to you know to her home. Like I feel like that lack of anything else that is maybe distracting him from his obsession or anything that is like rechanneling his uh, energy in a positive direction. I, th- I think that's all very correct as far as like why he's getting so nuts over this this situation. It's tough to watch a romantic movie when you're not necessarily romantic. I think the thing that I kept thinking of when I was watching the movie was, listen, Charles, you have this woman who is sitting right outside of your office who seems to be kind of infatuated with you. Why don't you give her a shot? Why are you going after the woman who is... Uh, married or in this relationship with Ox, why are you torturing yourself with that it, when you should really, you know, look at look elsewhere, look right outside your door and look at this other woman? And that's so easy to say that that is logic trumping love, and that is definitely not the way that the world works, and that's not the way that this movie works. So that was where I was coming from when it was like slightly frustrating, especially when he started to kind of go off the rails and kind of get 
into that much more uncomfortable, obsessive type love that he was expressing. And that's something that we've all seen in movies so many times before, possibly even in real life, when you know people who obsess over other people. And it just always gives me the heebie-jeebies. So some of that was just like, ah, but I can understand it at at times. Like when listening to you guys talking about this, I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, I kind of get this. I, I understand this is how the world works. And I think that that's kind of what makes me uncomfortable sometimes is that this is how the world is, and that's not necessarily the way that I am sometimes. I think I'm a little bit not of the world sometimes. I, I try to like shut myself out of it, so I, I think I need to open myself up to more of these romantic notions. I think as far as romance goes, I, I'll I'll watch you know When Harry Met Sally, and and that's about it. That's as far as I go. Maybe that and Annie Hall. I think Charles even mentions the, you know the fact that why oh, Betty's available? Why don't I talk to Betty? It's it's this kind of whole the, the whole kind of uh, Laurent aspect of it the 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 play that Ophel's adapted which is like you know that this character is in love with another character but that character is not in love with that other person he's in he or she is in love with this other person and that person's in love with someone else and there's this kind of totally irrational thing about romantic love that uh, that is easy to to roast in a way because uh, um, you know human feelings are are I mean I've been in uh, on a personal level, I, I've been in that situation. I've, you know, I've had, uh, uh, I, you know, coming from from my own end, I, I happen to be gay, but you know, at the same time, I've had uh, um, I've had really unusual girls, like like strange ones, who were after me. I'm talking like Sandra Bernhard's character in The King of Comedy, uh, weirdly enough, when that 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 was uh, disturbing on its own on its own account. But uh, at the same time, though, it's just like, well, why I um. Despite all these elements, this person's going to such lengths. Like, there's a part of me that, that d- despite everything, I'm like, and it's like, why can't I re- reciprocate this person's intensity? And, and it gets to the point where, when you're thinking about it, and w- I think one of the reasons I connect about Chili Scenes, uh, why I connect to Chili Scenes of Winter is that, that, that when you think about it enough, it, gets, it really does, you, you begin to laugh at yourself. I begin to laugh at myself. And the whole kind of uh, folly of everything, um, and I think that this is really the only movie I've seen that captures that kind of uh, ir- the irrational behavior of uh, uh, that comes with uh, kind of romantic entanglement. It is a totally irrational thing. Why? Why can't Charles go for Betty? Um, Betty is a lovely, lovely person, and you know she's she she has her recipes, and she's always you know coming uh, approaching him, but he but he cannot reciprocate because uh he's not oriented towards her he's oriented towards laura even though he knows he can't have her there's that would normally be i think in any other hands a tragedy uh i think in in many other that hands of many other filmmakers it would be a tragedy but somehow personal experience for me it's uh, it gets to be funny i've laughed at certain instances where where this has happened like i said as you guys have been talking about this i'm definitely seeing more of the real world in this and you know it, it's easy to do that when these characters are so fleshed out and they're so real i mean the his mother is a wonderful example of a real character i mean the way that she plays that line of is she actually crazy or is she acting crazy to get attention and i love that question that is out there and her relationship with Kenneth McMillan and just how, you know, you're talking about the guilt trips and everything. I mean, 
these are all real relationships. You know, th- this feels very close to home. So I can really see the appeal of this. And, and God, yeah, I mean, Gloria Graham as his mother, just uh, she does such a wonderful job with this. And I really, you know, from her first time on screen, every time she's back on, I just love watching her and love seeing what she's doing with her face, with her body, and just what she's bringing to this role. It reminds me so much of a real couple I knew, uh, a friend who had a uh, a mother that was very much an eccentric and a father that tried to contain it, but then also was always traveling and needed to kind of get away from it. So my friend was always dealing with this very eccentric uh, mother figure. Um, so I, I don't know. I think Gloria Graham is one of my favorite aspects of the film. I think she's totally convincing in every scene. I always have no trouble uh, buying her in that role. And I think, I don't know how much you know about her personal life, but some of the, I guess her relationship with Nicholas Ray's son caused like, I guess a scandal for her like professionally, but some of the almost flirtation with an incestual feeling when he's like taking her nude from the tub. I think, I think of some of her Mm -hmm. own personal life and some of, you know, her, her complicated uh, sexual history with, with the part. But um, I also, I was thinking of Kenneth McMillan and uh, Mike, I know how much you love Dune. And I was thinking how this is another film where we can hear the hero's thoughts. (laughs) Well, what's, what's funny is that when I interviewed John Hurd um, a couple years ago, he was talking about how when he was shooting this film, he went out on uh, what he informally refers to as quote-unquote dates with Gloria Graham, uh, where she was very, uh, very coquettish towards him. So, I mean, there, yeah, there is a whole thing with Tony, uh, with Tony Ray, I, whom I interviewed for, for the, my, my book on, on, on Sid Fury, because Sid cast him in uh, 1958 in a, in a Cool Sound from Hell which we which we uh, uh, showed at uh, the Toronto Film Festival uh, this past year, you know. So I talked to Tony, and I mean, part of the agreement with there was that you know, he's been he he talked about Cassavetes to death. He didn't want to talk at all about, uh, I think, for obvious reasons about you know the whole uh, imbroglio with uh, with Gloria Graham and with the with you know the whole with with his father. He didn't want to talk about his father at all. But I think, yeah, there is something about in the fact that, uh, that you know, she comments like then that one scene, Gloria Graham is talking about, uh, you're handsome like your father. But there's this kind of like the the reading of the line and the way that she's playing the scene, it's, it is it is kind of this uh, uh, vaguely incestuous take on the character where, where she's she is kind of, you know, a vamp in a way and prone to these uh, these um, episodes Including the one you had the Thanksgiving dinner, which, uh, uh, which, as, as I said, is legendary in my family, and beyond that, just you know the way that she, her her rendering of that character, which I mean, she was cast because Joan, um, Joan happened to be, uh, they were thinking about who to cast in that role, and that, that night on the Late Show in a Lonely Place happened to be playing on television, and uh, and it was Joan's kind of wild idea. Well, what, you know, is she around? Why can't we get her? Um, not knowing that she had, I guess, done done uh, roles here and there, and, and and that she was kind of you know working still, but there is something you know about that that kind of hurt the actress's own psychology that I think is playing into certain scenes, as 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 you mentioned, Mike, that is really playing in into certain scenes and that uh, and kind of this uh, in a way that's vaguely incestuous, but not but not something that should be overthought or thought about much at all, but it's just this kind of interesting undercurrent, I think, that uh, that is present in the film. 
with with and in, in terms of uh in terms of uh i guess her name is clara but she's never called by that uh in the film but uh but present for her in that film it's interesting that last week when we talked we were talking about a film that was right there on the edge right there released 1970 here we're talking about a film from 1979 but both of them this film not to the same extent but both films are looking at things through this kind of fractured lens and i appreciate the way that the story is actually told where we're kind of following charles through the present but yet getting those moments of the past and each moment of the past is kind of speaking to the present or just kind of giving us another glimmer into where they're at with the with their relationship i'm not sure i think that the moments in the past seem to be in a linear timeline i don't think we're jumping around when it comes to the past but it's definitely what he's thinking about at the moment is you know, what we're seeing but i think we're seeing it in a more linear fashion and then following him in the present and until finally the present kind of takes over for probably what the last at least the last act of the film but i do appreciate that we are the Faye Dunaway character from Puzzle of the Downfall Child, that we are getting everything through his interpretation of things. Of course, we're not getting them the present through his interpretation, but we're definitely getting the past through his eyes. So it's nice. Everything is kind of colored through John Hurd, and I appreciate that as well. It's a very interesting parallel. Um, yeah, because, the, because uh, um, I mean, at least in, in the novel as well, um, and Beatty's novel, um, the the Laura figure is kind of this this romantic ideal um, where you know and I think um, ultimately yeah we're, I think we are seeing a, a kind of refracted uh, version of uh, of the way Charles remembers Laura uh, it's not it's not in the in the kind of the same uh, on the same emotional or, or or schematic kind of scale as puzzle. But I think it's I think I think that is a very interesting parallel that that you that you brought up. Yeah, it it does deal in memory in this kind of uh, um, kind of an idealized memory of uh, of, uh, of a partner that Charles had, and you know uh, who is this kind of uh, you know can she you know can she measure up to to our our standards of you know is Laura really all that great? I mean, yeah, I guess I guess we're seeing her in, in, in some degree, and we can we can judge her on our subjectively from our own uh, spectacles, from our own point of view. But at the same time, yeah, I think I think there might be an an uh, an idealizing of Laura uh, based on based upon the fact that Charles still can't get over her, and we're in, in present time we're seeing him going back to uh, to the old to the old haunts to seeing, seeing him, uh, outside the A-frame, seeing him uh, and all these, all these, uh, memories that he has, including the trampoline and, you know, the bird feeder and everything and, and all, and very, very specific things. But I mean, you know, in relationships I've had, I can't help, but idealize But when I, when I, when I reality check myself, I was like, well, was it that great? I'm not quite sure. Comparing it to the book, I think in the book, you don't really get a sense of Laura in the present until nearly the end, and so she does feel more romanticized in in that telling of right. it. I don't, I don't know if I think of those flashbacks uh, as uh, certainly not compared to Puzzle of a Downfall Child. I, d- right. I don't think of them as that romanticized. I certainly think that he's always coming across as you know needy or obsessive more than half of, in more than half of the flashbacks. I mean, even before he says maybe things weren't so perfect. 
there's there, there isn't a sense of him ever saying all the right things or her. I don't get a sense of her being perfect in those flashbacks. But I mean, maybe I'm being more caught off guard by the the, the wrong things that he says so frequently, uh, the questions or yeah, just his his offbeat humor. But I, I, I get the sense that she's being accurately portrayed because she seems the same in the in the present tense scenes and the flashbacks. I don't get a sense of her being that different a character. Whereas in the book, I think it's a much more jarring thing that um, you see, you see like the kinder quirky side of Charles being mostly pleasant to, you know, everyone he interacts with. And then when he finally gets back together with Laura in her apartment, it's that scene where he's asking her about the taxi driver mm-hmm. and uh, it's, it's almost kind of, uh, it takes you off guard that, you know, he's actually being kind of a dick and, and being yeah, a little bit crazy. Uh, but the film, it's almost always portraying him as a little bit crazy. I think I think you know, part of this this irrational part of uh, romantic love is that we see the imperfections as as as, as their own kind of uh, uh, perfection in a way. And as you said, there's there's a line: maybe things weren't so perfect, uh, which Charles says in voiceover at, w- at one point. But uh, I mean, I think I think what this movie does manage to do for for the many people in the in its kind of in the brotherhood or the or, or the sisterhood or the kind of, this kind of underground network of people who really connect with this movie we i think we're drawn i mean I, I, as a film lover i'm drawn to films with flaws because i think the flaws are more interesting than the, the, the than oftentimes than the than the perfect elements of, of a film describing that the kind of a, a life uh, you know or a r- r- romantic idea um maybe charles you know for laura for all her perfections is seeing her in a certain way and and these imperfections are in his eyes you know that that they're these kind of uh flaws in their respect or, you know, as he see it as he as he might see it, the flaws in their kind of respective and, and, and i know they, they kind of sink in a way perhaps but i mean i didn't think about the puzzle connection until mike brought it up and and uh you know it's an interesting parallel. It doesn't quite quite mesh, but there is something there. Um, and and just kind of musing on it for a moment, I, you know, I think I think uh, something that's that I find interesting about uh, whatever relationships I've been in is the kind of uh, perfection of, of of imperfection and the way that those imperfections sync with our our inner self in some way. And I think that's what Charles sees, and maybe he's hearkening back to in some some unhealthy uh, uh, idyllic way. Can you imagine how boring this movie and how awful this movie would be if Charles was a perfect character, if Laura was a perfect character? I mean, their flaws are what make this movie what it is and what make them interesting and what makes them ultimately human. And these characters are so well-rounded, and they are because of their foibles, I think. So I can, uh, I really appreciate just how these characters are being played. I mean, even to the smallest characters, to to Griffin Dunn just kind of showing up as this super neurotic doctor. I absolutely love his character when he showed up. Just so many great smaller moments of this film that really add up to make it a larger, terrific movie. Yeah, I, I love I love Griffin in the movie. I mean, when I saw it at IFC years back, that I mean, his scene got a huge laugh uh, i mean just one of the i mean it was, it, it was there were laughs all the way through i mean it was a packed house and uh it was i think they had to turn a couple people away uh during uh, for the ifc screening which um uh, the 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 q a the so joan was there that night 
that's actually when I first met her. Uh, and uh, Mary Beth Hurt was there, and um, Ira Deutschman, who who worked for uh, UA Classics at the time, who who uh, agreed to re- redistribute the film in '82. Uh, he was present, so you know. But uh, but at the time, though, um, you know, the, the, you know, the film got many laughs uh, all the way through, and and uh, you know, I think, and you really got the feeling that these people in the audience were familiar enough with the movie, uh, and that scene with an audience was this kind of communal experience. Of, oh, we can laugh at the things we've been laughing about in a solitary fashion together, perhaps for the first time for for some people. Um, and and uh, Griffin Dunn's scene was one of the one of the big laughs that night and there's something well because i've known people like griffin dunn's character just in that one scene you 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 get a certain type and it's not it, and it's not really a laugh at the expense of that person uh necessarily even though i think it's a laugh that you know people like this exist and uh and and you know the, and uh, john Hurd's line at the end of the scene like i think he's the one of the most amazing people i've ever met or whatever and a huge response um, yeah, I mean, so Griffin, uh, and I, it was funny because I was, I was just showing, uh, actors, uh, last night I was directing a scene and we were, uh, I was showing that, uh, the one actor Griffin Dunn in After Hours and the, the scene doesn't have much to do with Griffin Dunn in, in After Hours much at all, but it was like, you know, that type of, uh, that type of reaction, you know, it's just, which is hard to de- define in, 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 in a kind of a, a semantic way, but yeah, he has a certain uh, way of, uh, of uh, uh, delivering lines or, or, or kind of uh, putting forth a certain veneer about, about uh, you know, this kind of, uh, I've, I've said a lot about a character who only has one scene in the movie, but that's, that's I think, how well-observed the movie is. All right, guys, I think now is a good time to take a break. We're going to play a whole big raft of interviews. You're going to hear from Joan Micklin-Silver, the director and writer of the film, John Hurd, who plays Charles, Amy Robinson, Griffin Dunn, and Mark Metcalf, who were the producers of the film, and also Griffin Dunn and Mark Metcalf were actors in the film. So you're going to hear all of those after we're back from these brief messages. Do you like horror movies? So do we. Fucks is the lie ball yep. out. Just pumps it on out. She yeah. was great. Do you like American Horror Story? So do we. There were some butts. Yep. Pillins. Yep. Butt. Yep. Pillins. Butt. Yep. Pillins. If it's over 90% cheek, that's your butt. You see the essence of the butt. Are you into vampires dancing in mesh tank tops? Us too. I was mesmerized by the mesh tank top and leather pants. Are you into high-minded film critique and discussion? Because we've got that. And it is beautifully filmed. Like, it really... Just the stark contrast of colors, like you said. Not your thing? How about a dick joke? His dick, dude. He put his yeah. dick in a fucking pig. Come on. We've also got one dude to give dude perspective. Zombie apocalypse is no time to have your head in the pussy clouds, Mickey. This is survival. <laughs> Thank you. So head over to iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you listen, and subscribe to The Bloodlust, your go-to podcast for classy broads and a token dude talking horror. They're the movie podcasts where very serious people talk about very serious things, analyzing them like true professional critics in a very serious way. They're also podcasts where drunk or high youngins talk excitedly over each other about the latest pop culture stuff, dropping references and opinions like they were drunked up skunks. 
But what if you want both? What about if you want a movie review podcast and website that has a sense of humor, mad songs, and weird guests, but also reviews movies with a passion and reference not seen since Mrs. Penelope Thigh's public access movie Rama show just out of Duluth in 1987? Well, now you can. At no extra cost and with no unnecessary bowel misplacement, it's the After Movie Diner podcast. Available on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and AfterMovieDiner.com. As sponsored by Titty Headlines, Movie Sanctuary, and Facial Matter, let's please take exit 37 off I 98 miles for Terrence. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Welcome to the interviews you're about to hear from the director and screenwriter of Chilly Scenes of Winter, Joan Micklin-Silver. I know you grew up in uh, Nebraska. What kind of film scene was there there, and, and what was your interest in movies when you were a kid? Oh, I loved movies madly. First of all, I grew up in the late 40s and the early 50s, and that was before television came to Omaha. And therefore, the movies had no, no competition, you know. <laughs> it was just the movies. And I had uh, a best friend, and from the time I was about 11, we went to the movies every single Saturday we got on this the streetcar and went downtown and I mean, in those days it was a double feature or a stage show and a feature and also a cartoon and also coming attractions but they were called trailers I mean it was just a huge amount and you know you got it for very little I mean I think we were 35 cents a piece at our, at our age so it was just thrilling and, and I loved them I've always loved movies and how did you decide to kind of make that your career? Ray and I lived, my husband and I lived in uh, Cleveland for the first 11 years we were married. Our children were born and so on. And I still kept up my interest in films. And I went to see a film that was done by Satyajit Ray. Uh, it was Father Panchali. And he's a great, great Indian director. Of course, I knew nothing about him. And that was the very first film he ever made. And when I saw that film, I had a sort of, uh, I don't know what to call it. I, I just, I, I said to myself, I can do this. I can, I can tell stories on film. Now, I had no reason to say that, but I had a very strong feeling that I could. And uh, when we moved to New York, I was able to pursue it. And how did you go about doing that? First thing that I, I did was to write for a, an educational film company. 
and that gave me a chance to get started and eventually to direct as well as write uh, educational films, which was my beginning. And when I'd made three of these and done it myself, and they'd been well-received and honored and so on, I thought, okay, uh, you know, I knew that there were guys who were moving over to feature films, and I wanted to do so. And I just killed myself trying to get an appointment with one of the companies and finally succeeded and went in. And he said, look, feature films are expensive to make and expensive to distribute. And and women directors are one more problem we don't need. So that was, it was just so blatant. And I'm talking the early 70s, you know, it was just uh, nobody even pretended about it. They just you know, said it that that, that wasn't going to be. So my husband, you know, I got I got really upset and depressed about it, and he got angry, and he said, "Look, if you can write a good script, I'll I'll raise the money and we'll make it." So that was Hester Street. Even before Hester Street, uh, well, before Hester Street went into production, you were doing other writing. I know there was the film Limbo, and then, um, well, of course, some shorts that you had made and everything. What what was the story with Limbo? How did that come to be? Limbo was a script that I wrote that I wasn't able to get done. And the, the, it just had some problems. Uh, the, the Universal sent it to Mark Robeson because he, they had a pair play with him. I, he owed them one, and I th- thought that this might be one he would want to do, and he did. And what Limbo was, was about was about the wives of MIAs and POWs in uh, from Viet- from the Vietnamese War, and it was toward the end of the war when there was a lot of sentiment building against the war. And I met some of these women, and I thought they were really interesting, and I thought I'd like to tell their story. They were really banding together and trying to, you know, make make a difference and all sorts of things. And it was interesting to to work with them and meet them and so on. So he he sent this script to Mark Robeson, and I went out to California. To, uh, that he wanted me to, you know, to come out and talk about the script. And he told me that he thought the women were bitchy and that, that, that he just had a lot of reservations about it. And, of course, I defended them. I said, they aren't bitchy. They're angry. They're, you know, they've, they haven't been treated the way they should have been. I, anyway, I, I fought on my side. He fought on his side. And I went back to New York and got the news that I was no longer on the project. So, well, I mean, too bad I was so naive that I thought that that's what I should do, right? That I should sit and tell him, you know, argue with him like that. But that was all I knew to do. He was very generous because he invited me to visit while he made the film. He made it in Florida. And, you know, that's pretty nice. I mean, I was a disgruntled writer, and yet I I could talk to actors. I could look through the camera. I could talk to the camera. I mean, I could do anything I wanted on the set. And uh, I also had access to the, the office and uh, the budget and, you know, other things that helped me a lot because I didn't really know anything about it. I'd never made a feature film. I'd never worked on one, you know. And so it was just a great learning experience for me. And uh, frankly, he was just doing what he was supposed to do, which is to make the movie he thought he should make. You know, I thought it was soppy and silly and... And kind of it wasn't the story that I'd hoped to tell, but uh, you know that's the way it goes. So anyway, from there, the next the, the, I told you that that's how we got to to uh, Hester Street. It must have been something of a struggle to get Hester Street off the ground. I mean, it's it's um, non traditional, you know, not a um, you know 
feel good movie of the week kind of thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great story, but it's not something that I see every day. So how was that actually getting Hester Street made? Um, I told you that Ray, he was the enabler by far, you know, he, he, he was very happy that I thought whatever I wanted to make. And I told him that one of the short films that I made was on immigration. It was on Polish Catholics, but I read everything I could find. And I read the story that became the story that I adapted for Hester Street. It was by Abraham Kahn, who was the head of the Jewish Daily Forward and uh, also a writer of note. And I loved this book. And the, it's a novella, actually. But I took a different emphasis than the one it had. It was basically about the husband who comes here first and, and Americanizes and doesn't, by the time he sends for his wife, he doesn't want her anymore. And, and my sympathies and interests were with the wife, so I made it more the wife's story. And how was that actually putting the project together? I mean, was this was your first film. It must have been quite a challenge. Oh, it was. It was. I, I used to say, you know, I, I got through the movie with the two A's, anxiety and adrenaline. <laughs> because, it, it, yeah, of course it was, you know. And, I mean, we were, we were so close to the bone money-wise. I think he raised $370,000. That's not a lot to make a period film. But one of the wonderful things about it was, since I wasn't working for any kind of company or anything like that, I could make decisions that I felt were the right decisions. And one was that I wanted to use a lot of Yiddish because my uh, father had told a lot of immigrant stories. And the stories that all immigrants tell have to do with the difficulties of the new language, making mistakes, you know, not being able to understand people and so on. And I wanted to do that. I felt that was important. And uh, also, I did a lot of research at the New York Public Library about um, photos like they got a fantastic collection. Jacob Rees, Lewis Hine, these are, you know, people who photographed the Lower East Side in that period. And they were all black and white. And I just felt to myself, wow, that's what I ought to do. I ought to make it black and white. So I talked to Ray about it. And he went to the library with me. And we looked at the pictures together. And then we talked about the Yiddish. And he was... uh, you know, on board for both of them. He thought, great, do it. Where did you actually end up shooting at? The, the Hester Street itself was not on the Lower East Side. The real Hester Street had, it was long and had an awful lot of uh, Hispanic signage and other things that it would have been just too expensive for us to manage. And we found Morton Street in the uh, West Village, and that was a, like a one-street street. It was between 7th Avenue and Bleecker Street, and Bleecker formed like a T, so that if you aimed that way, you didn't have to go beyond because you, your eye wouldn't take you beyond. So it was just a way of you know managing, picking something that we could manage with our budget. I had read that John Cassavetes had uh, uh, a little bit of a toe in the film. Can you oh, tell me about he, your connection was, with him? Yes, absolutely. You know, when I finished the film, then we took it around, and nobody wanted to distribute it. Nobody wanted to distribute it. I guess everybody's indie hero, you know, at the time was John Cassavetes. He was such a good filmmaker and made his own films, and he was just somebody that everybody admired. And Ray found a way to get in touch with him and called him and told him the problem that nobody would distribute it. And John Cassavetes said, You should distribute it. And Ray said, Well, 
I know, but I, I'm in the real estate business. <laughs> I don't really know anything about film distribution. And he said, well, I'm going to send you some guys that I've been working with here. They're, they live in New York, and they're finished with what they're doing here, and they'll come back, and they'll help you get, get it going. So Ray and these helpers did it, and they, you know, I mean, Ray entered the movie and the Cannes Film Festival, it got in. I mean, just had a lot of luck after that long period when I thought, you know, I'd made a movie that nobody would ever see. You said that you went to Cannes with the film. What was kind of the response to the movie? It was great reviews and just wonderful. I think that the, 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 whoever made the translation did an awfully good job because there was just the, the laughter was in the same places and the, it just you felt like the movie was flowing so beautifully. And um, that wonderful reception allowed Ray to sell the film in four foreign countries. I don't remember them all now. I know that France was one. I think Italy was one. Germany, I don't remember the fourth one. And he had enough money to open it in uh, New York and in Los Angeles. And so that worked. And so uh, we did. And then he even got Oscar nominations for Carol Kane. Oh, That's that amazing. Was heavenly. That was just the nicest thing. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was very special, and she deserved it. What was she like to work with? Oh, she was just a joy. She's still one of my dear friends. Uh, it, she was really, really good, and it, she, it, she just had a tremendous instincts and and a great feeling. You know, when I cast the role in Khan's story, the wife is described as uh, having inky black eyes, inky black eyes. And uh, being slightly uh, plump and this and that and the other thing. And I had a good casting director and we thought, well, let's see what we can find that following, you know, his his dictum. And I wasn't finding anybody that I really liked or, you know, felt was right for the part. And then I saw a Canadian movie called Wedding in White and in which Carol uh, was just stunning. And so I said to the casting director, I said, that's the kind of a person that I'd like to have play the role. And he said, well, let's get her in. I said, absolutely not. We can't afford to bring somebody down from Canada and put her up and, you know, for eight weeks and, and supply all of her food and her this and her that and her plane fares. And he said, guess what? She lives across the park. So I found out that she was an American, not a Canadian at all. And he, she came in, and of course, I fell in love with her. I just thought she was wonderful. She was a joy to work with. So tell me, how did Bernice Bob's her hair come about? Bernice Bob's her hair, you know, I don't exactly remember how it began, but there was a company that was making movies to show on public television, and they were all based on famous stories. And I think that he saw Hester Street, the, the guy who was the head of it, and he wanted me to pick a story that I thought I could do. And he thought that I would like Bernice Bob's or Hair, which is an F. Scott Fitzgerald story. And he's so right. I just adored it. So uh, my job was to write the script and then direct it. And I had hoped that when I, as I was writing it, I thought, well, maybe Carol Kane will play the main role. But she was not available. She had another project. And so Ray and I went to Telluride with Hester Street. And who should be there but Shelley Duvall, who was just perfect for Bernice and fantastic to work with. So that was lucky. That role she really seemed to click with. She was just wonderful in that. Oh, I thought she was perfect. You know, she was, she, she just had the whole 
quality of it, the arms and the legs and the teeth and, you know, the country cousin feel. And it was just terrific. It was, she did something else for me that was very nice, too. After uh, I was out in California and I asked her if she could get a few actors together, I needed to hear the script out loud. You know, I always like to do that before I start directing. I want to see that I've got it right. I don't need to make changes and so on. So she did. And uh, the, the boyfriend who is described by F. Scott Fitzgerald as, you know, the typical Fitzgerald man, tall, dark, and handsome. And I had thought, well, that's how I'll cast it. But she brought Bud Court in to read the role, and he was so good. I said, that's it, that's it. So I invited Bud to join us. Yeah, you've always seemed to have really good luck when it comes to actors, and especially when it comes to more of an ensemble cast. I mean, between the lines, it's just so many great people in oh, one film. It, though. In fact, it was because of working with John in between the lines that I thought I've just got to find something to do with this guy. He's so good. But they all were good. It was a super ensemble. What was it like when you first met John Hurd? Let's see. I, I met him for between the lines, and honestly, I don't remember except that I, I liked his work and I liked him, and I thought his readings were great and he was fun to work with. But th- I'll tell you what John had that was very unusual. Most actors get their lines, they learn them, they figure out how they're going to do them, they do them, and then no matter what, come hell or high water, that's how they do them. But Jean was of the school of actors that really listens to the other actors, so that somehow he was adjusting to what he was hearing and what was going on, and it was just, so therefore it was kind of always almost a little bit mysterious what was going to happen, and it was terrific. It seems like with Between the Lines, that was the first movie you directed that you didn't you didn't get a writing credit for. What was that experience like for you? What happened was I met Fred Barron when I when we took our when we took Hester Street to Cannes, and he loved Hester Street and he told me that he had written the script and he would really like to, to like it if I would be interested in directing it. And the fact of the matter was that he was working for one of these small papers. And I, when I was searching desperately to try to get into the film business, I was freelancing for the Village Voice. So I had had that experience too, you know? And uh, somehow just, uh, it all came together. I don't know. It was great. (laughs) How did uh, Chilly Scenes of Winter start for you? I read Anne's book. I guess I had read some short stories of hers. It's the only thing I could think of, but I don't remember. But I read her novel, and I just loved it. And I thought, oh, I love this book. And John Hurd can play the lead. So I called up about the rights, and I was told that the rights were gone. I just couldn't believe it. I mean, I just said, no, no. So uh, the rights had gone to a trio of actors who were young, and I only knew one of them, Mark Metcalf, but he had tried out for me. I guess it must have been on Between the Lines, and I had still had his contact information. So I got in touch with him and told him that I wanted to write and direct this, and I wondered how his group would feel about that. And he said, well, let me talk to them. And he got back to me, and he said, well, we'd love to meet with you. We were very interested. So we got together, and I said, I can't remember whether I said it or they said it, but I said, look, the one uh, sine qua non here is I have to have John Hurd play the lead, or maybe they said it to me. It happened, so (laughs) it was so wonderful. They felt exactly the same way. They knew John as a young actor because that's what they were, but they also loved his work. So that was sort of how it all came together, and they were a joy to work with. What was your experience like putting chilly scenes together? Well, it was just a pleasure, you know. It was 
I tried to get Anne Abidi to write the script with me. I thought, perfect, that would be so much fun, and we could do it together. And she came into my office, and I told her. She said, I don't want to write it. I wrote the book. I don't want to write a, a movie script. She said, but I'd like to be in it. So she has a teeny, teeny little appearance as a waitress. <laughs> but she was she was extremely positive about it all. And after the film, she did something that just made me feel so good. We were invited, she and I, to go to Baltimore to a screening, and then we were supposed to speak afterwards. And uh, one of the questions that we received from the audience was for her, and the question was, well, how did you feel about the changes that Joan made? And she said, I like them. If I'd thought of them, I would have put them in the book. I mean, you can't ask for better than that, right? <laughs> so it was awfully nice. Yeah, she, she was just wonderful to work with. It was just, it was a great group. It started off kind of uh, edgily because, you know, the book is all, you've got to shoot the book someplace where you know you're going to get snow because it has a lot to do with the feeling. And I just, I wanted it anyway. I grew up in a, the snow belt and I just felt that, that that would add a lot to it. And so we, we went up to Albany and thought we would make the, 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 the I went with the three producers, but uh, we had various problems with the union and they were making demands, unions, they were making demands that we didn't feel we could meet. And I remember Amy said to one of them, you know, if, if you keep on this way, we aren't going to be able to make the movie in Albany. And he said, so don't make the movie in Albany. So we did our research and we found out that the winters in Utah are, are plenty of heavy snows and the union situation seemed very positive. And uh, that's what we did. We went to, to Salt Lake City. That's quite a change. Absolutely. But, you know, we wanted snow. And by the way, here was our, our scariest snow experience. We went out for a recce, you know, where you, you find the things you want, you look and I the producers and I, and we found what we needed. And then when it came time to make the movie, we went out and we get there and it's absolutely sunny and beautiful. And there wasn't a drop of snow anywhere. And it was, I tell you, it was, it was like, what? This can't be, I can't, I can't bear this. And that night it started snowing and it snowed and snowed and snowed until it looks like it looks now. How do you like that? Wonderful, wonderful cast, which you, you've talked a little bit about. But I, I have to ask, what was it like working with Gloria Graham? Oh, I, I just thought Gloria was wonderful. She, the way, the way she, we thought of her was. That, I don't know whether you remember this, but in, in in New York, there used to be something called a million dollar movie. This was in the seventies, and they would show a movie for a week. And if you missed it on Tuesday, you got to see it on Wednesday. You know, this is before DVDs and, and, you know, tapings and all the rest of it. So if there was a good movie on, you had a chance to see it. And I think it was on about 11 a night or something. I don't remember. But anyway, one of the nights was In a Lonely Place, which is one of her great, Gloria Graham's great movies. And the next day, the producers and I called each other and we said, Gloria Graham for the mother. I mean, we all just, we were so in sync. It was great. And uh, she wanted to do it. And she was a pleasure. She liked it. And she, you know, I remember one thing that she didn't want to say. The line was, I'm 57 and I'm not dead yet. And she said, well, I'm not 57. 
And I said, well, Gloria, uh, you know, it doesn't, it isn't about you. The character is talking about herself. And she said, well, I won't say it. And she wouldn't. So we didn't. <laughs> that is the worst thing I ever heard. Oh, she was a pleasure. She was just great. And I know you worked with Peter Riegert a few times. Um, that after was the this. first one, though. Yeah. How was that experience? Oh, Peter was just terrific. I mean, he was, I've had an awfully positive luck with the actors that I've worked with. I've just somehow been lucky enough to pick good ones who, who like the project and want to, you know, be in the project and, and be a part of it. And he was just a pleasure. And I know that, that my movie after Chili Scenes was uh, Crossing to Lancy. I just uh, Peter had to play the pickle man, and, and the writer Susan Sandler and I agreed totally that was who had to do it. So I just sent him the script in the mail. I said, "Here's your next project," and I didn't hear back. And I thought, "Oh, gee, does not like it? What's going on?" So I finally called him. I said, "Peter, did you like the script?" He said, "Yes." And I said, "Well, is there something wrong with it?" He said, "Yes." And I said, well, "What's the problem?" He says, "Well, I don't come in till page 30." So I said, Peter, did you ever see Tartuffe? You can say this to Peter because he's a sort of intellectual who would see a mo- who sees Moliere plays. You know, mo- uh, mar- the, it's called Tartuffe and it's about Tartuffe, but he doesn't come in until I don't know how long. And uh, Peter said, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> that was wonderful, but he was a pleasure to work with. When I started directing, I hadn't gone to film school, but I spent a lot of time reading books by... Oh, good directors, and and some directors wrote in a very interesting way about their work, and one of them was Ilya Kazan, who wrote a lot about films, and I liked a number of the films that he directed. One of the things that Kazan said was that when you direct a film, you have to have a mano a mano with your main actor, and you have to have it early, and you have to win. So I kind of tucked that away and thought, okay, whatever, okay, okay. And uh, on Hester Street and on the next film, which was Between the Lines, it just somehow never came up. I, I never found myself in that position. But on Chilly Scenes, I did. Um, it was a scene, I think it was the scene in which John and Peter were at the table with uh, the young woman who worked in their company, in, in John's company. And Peter was throwing lights up into the a fixture and... Uh, John was trying to find to get information about Laura from the young woman, and they were at the dinner table. So we did a, a, a wide shot, and uh, I got to where I liked it. It was good, and we moved in for coverage, and uh, started with John, and I had to say cut, and I said, John, that doesn't match the master, and he said, so what? So I thought. You know, my heart started beating. I thought my mano a mano is here, and I could see that you know the crew sort of all looking around. So is there going to be fireworks here? And I said, Well, John, I, I like it better the other way. And he said, Oh, okay. You know, one person who I always thought was was a terrific actor who never really seemed to get his due was Kenneth McMillan. Wasn't he good? I just think he's oh, he's terrific. Uh, first of all, you had to stretch yourself a little bit to say, well, then why is this man staying with this woman? She was so crazed and so difficult and so on. And he he sort of gave you a character that you could believe would have done it, that he thought it was the right thing to do. And that, you know, he, 
uh, he just made you believe the whole thing. I loved his performance. What was it like working with um, Griffin Dunn and Mark Metcalf and Amy Robinson being the producers? They were just fantastic. I mean, they were they were just a pleasure, absolutely a pleasure. The one who had the most to do was Mark because he played uh, Mary Beth's husband, Ox, and I I just thought he was brilliant. I thought he was wonderful. I loved what he did. And I, uh, Griffin played the um, the boyfriend of Charles's younger sister, and he, so I think he just had one scene, but he was great. I mean, they were just terrific. I can't remember Amy's scene, but it didn't make it in. But that happens, you know. You know, there can always be a little tension between the director and the producer. So, and then having these people also being actors in your film, I was just like, I hope that's not a recipe for disaster. But it sounds like quite the opposite. Oh, there was no tension at all. I mean, we were all on the same team, you know. We wanted to do it together, and we had a good time together. And I can still remember when we went out on the airplane to to meet with, must have been, well, like maybe it was to go out to Salt Lake City or something. I mean, I just felt like, the, you know, I felt like I had known these guys forever, and, and, and Amy, and I just felt so good with them. And we all agreed, and we could disagree, and then then still come to some sort of conclusion about it, and it was great. I have been pretty lucky when you think about it. Well, yeah, I mean, especially the whole idea of of a, a woman working in a really male dominated field. I mean, the whole idea of you know uh, one more uh, a woman is something we don't need, kind of thing. Uh, it just yeah. Can you imagine? They didn't even he didn't even try to not say it. I mean, you know, he could have easily said, gee, I'm sorry, we have our, our eye on somebody else, but they didn't care, you know. That was just, the, we were invading, trying to invade their their place, and they weren't going to tolerate it. Yeah, well, it sounds like you were, were able to get around that kind of well, garbage. Yeah, yeah, thing. although never to the degree, certainly, that, that, you know, in the years that I was so busy making films, I mean, I think what really enabled me most was, was Ray, when Ray made it possible for me to make Hester Street and encouraged me and raised the money and made me feel I could do it. And, uh, you know, and when I finished the, the script of Hester Street, I showed it to some people that I knew and people who were working in the industry and so on. And they all said, well, gee, it's a really good script, but I don't think there's an audience for it. And I don't think anybody's going to see it. And, and, you know, and the, the, he, I, when I told Ray what they said, he said, if you make a good movie, there's a lot of people who will see it. He just, just kind of made me feel we could do it. What was the reception like for the film? I thought that we got kind of stiffed, you know, by the... the, the uh, what happened was that they changed the title. And the title that they changed it to, to me, sort of made it sort of like saying, we don't care about this, this is nothing, this is just a little, you know, passing thing that'll pass away and we won't care. Head Over Heels really wasn't a very interesting title for the sorts of people that want to see chilly scenes, and I love that. And, of course, what they said at uh, United Artists was that people don't like titles that suggest that it was cold and snow. I right, come on. So what, what was really happening there, I believe, and this is, this is what I believe and the producers believe, and we were trying to figure it out, they were working with Michael Cimino on that big film that was costing more and more and more and more and more. And I think they basically just wanted to get the 
other films they were working on off their plate so they could concentrate on that one because it was a huge investment. Yeah, all the fallout from that. Yeah, and I don't think it helped our film at all. But the interesting part is that then we got a, a chance to re-release the movie. And by that time, I realized that although I had followed Anne's final scene in which Laura comes back to Charles, in fact, that isn't what audiences wanted at all. You know, one of the things I like to do after I make a movie is show it to a lot of groups and just kind of get a feel. So if there's any changes I can make, I will, you know, if I need to. What people wanted was not for Laura to come back to Charles, but for Charles to get over this obsession with Laura. Because I think that what the movie is based on, I think the thing that makes the movie popular or makes people relate to it, is it, it, it's based on the universal experience. And that, that is that everyone has at one time in this life or another loved somebody more than that somebody loved him or her. And that really is what the film is about. You know, it isn't just about, oh, this couple, they just have to get together. And what people really seemed to want was for Charles to get over it. Was there, did they re-review the film when it came out with a different ending? You know, I don't remember that either. I didn't think that the the critics were as positive about the film as they should have been. I was really proud of the film. I thought it was terrific. But it sort of found its own, you know. It kind of found its own its own audience, and it's it's lasted a lot longer than certain films that did get good reviews. So, I, you know, I, I can't complain too much. It certainly was, was a great, great pleasure to make, and I loved my cast, and I loved my producers, and I had a really good crew, and, and it snowed in Salt Lake, and, you know... <laughs> The, the things that you worry about, you know, it kind of all worked out, and I felt really good about it. I wanted to ask you, you don't have very many producing credits, but you do have one for uh, On the Yard. Yeah, but but, but that was pretty much, I, I had intended to to actually be there and produce it, but they wouldn't let me because it was made at a prison, and it was a male prison, and they wouldn't let females into any of the places that, you know, so Ray sort of had to produce it for himself while he was, and then, you know, I just, oh, I never forget. It was about five hours drive, and I remember driving home. I just felt so bad. I couldn't be there to help him. He'd help me every time, you know, but I love his film. Before I let you go, I just wanted to, to say to you that I really, really love Crossing the Land Sea, and I'm so glad that you made that one as well, that it was just a terrific movie. Oh, I'm so glad you liked it. Well, we'll do a podcast someday about Crossing the Land Sea. Thank you for telling me that. Now let's hear from Charles, actor John Hurd. Mostly I want to know uh, about Chilly Scenes of Winter, but I would like to know how you kind of got into the acting game. Uh, largely because of my mother. Yeah, my mom is in the community theater business. She got excited about building a theater in the garage. She said, why don't you take an interest in something? And I said, yeah, like what? And then it was my she was she was never like pushy about it, but I ended up playing her son in a play at the uh, community center, and I got a laugh when I screwed up my line. And she said, "I said, why does everybody laugh?" And she said, "Because whenever you screw up that line, your face turns bright red." So I like lit up like a Christmas tree or something, and that was my I liked it. And I was in high school, and I did plays in high school, and I did. And I was very fortunate to go to Clark University, and they had this little experimental theater group with a guy named John Knowles. When experimental theater was kind of becoming popular, I tried to do 
Jack or the Submission in high school by UNESCO, and I, he did a play called uh, La Scurial by De Gildero that was pretty brave for this little college. I mean, it required some serious acting, of which I was not qualified, but it, it you know, his, the, the, the notion that it was a, a step away from the traditional kind of productions of, you know, Oklahoma and uh, Broadway musicals and into this world of quote-unquote experimental theater kind of gave you the guts to, to just kind of horse around, screw around and try it, you know, try to try to be an actor rather than just a kid jumping around in an extracurricular activity and being told uh, that you can't sing a note. Which did happen. I, I was in the Cork University Players, and the guy did tell me, can't you hear it? Whenever I would sing. And I was like uh, that kind of endless actor's dream of being yelled at by a director or not knowing your lines, that kind of thing. But I think that's a long time ago. I mean, I was like, the film thing, that just happened organically, kind of a bit by being in New York in the 70s, turning into the 80s, and everybody getting on a plane. and having enough cocaine to get a, get around in L.A. I don't think any of the actors of my generation would have even gone to L.A. if they didn't have coke because we we were all juicers. I mean, we all hung around at Jimmy Ray's and the, and the West, uh, the Cafe, uh, whatever, on 75th Street. We all drank. All the watering holes were, were pretty well known in Manhattan for the young actors. I think that when they had to get on airplanes and get cars and show up in L.A. and do movies, they needed a little something. You know, get around because I don't know too many bars. I were there were not when I went to L.A. and I got out of a plane off a plane and it was first class. I was loaded and poured into a limousine and and gone to the Sunset Marquee where they made me put up a hundred dollars in advance because of the potential damage to the room that I was going to do. And walked outside and said, "Hey, where's the local tavern?" And everybody looked at me like, "Where are you from? New York City? Well, where's the subway? Get out of here!" You know, just go back in your room and trash your room and drink your brains out till you pass out. And that was like pretty much L.A. for me because I think Nikki Blair's was maybe the only watering hole for actors or Dantana's. So it's really a study in alcoholism rather than, than acting. <laughs> you know, how does a good alcoholic pursue acting? There's a means to an end. And there was, a, you know, like there's that tradition of uh, Barrymore and you'd gone down the drank, you know, the British, oh God, why can't I think anybody, you know, Burton and uh, Tool and, you know, there was a, so it's stuff. I, if I came from the theater, I was more or less obliged, you know, to go out afterwards and sit and, and tell stories and drink and not get up until noon the next day in, in Manhattan and then just be ready to perform at 7.30. So I liked that. That was okay with me. To come to L.A. and have to get up at 6.30 and then 5 o'clock in the morning and have some avocado juice to get through the day, it was a totally alien to me. So what your question was, how did I get into I mean, That's pretty much the scope of my, my acting career, was how to cope between the difference between theater and film and New York City and L.A. When did you first meet uh, Joan Micklin-Silver? I met Joan on the first movie that uh, Between the Lines. She directed it and wrote it, I think, with her husband, Ray. She turned me on. <laughs> but she was cute. 
but she had a whole, she had a handful of young, young actors that she wanted to put in that. Graham Beckel was one of them, I, I know. And so I was very flattered to be in that company from between the lines. Jeff Goldblum and uh, Gwen, uh, what's her name, Wells, and Lindsey Krauss and Bruno Kirby, Stephen Collins. I mean, they were all known to me. Everybody is somebody. You know, everybody went on to be somebody. Yeah, exactly. And Joan had remarkable taste, I always thought. And she was very steady. She never she never really directed much. She was very quiet, very soft-spoken. But, you know, at the same time, she was like the first woman, I think, in, uh, I don't know, in history, but certainly in studio, when we just later did uh, Chilly Scenes of Winter. She was one of the, the women of the world of film from the, whatever that time on. I don't know where she's at now. I don't know why she's not directing something. She had done Esther Street, I think. So she was acclaimed and to, you know, amongst people who knew. Jeff Goldblum and, and Bruno Kirby used to make fun of her, used to tease her about, you know, that's good. Joan likes good shtick. And he would stick his hand in the coffee machine. He would put the money in the coffee machine and reach in to get the coffee, and the cup wouldn't come, and the, he, he would burn his hand, and he would pull his hand down and go, oh, that's good stick, that's good stick, that's what Joan likes. And Jeff Goldblum and Bruno would laugh it up about what Joan liked and didn't like, and how Joan was, and they had a good time together, and it was all in good fun. What was it like for you, then, being the lead? I mean, you've had been in, um, obviously, quite a few things to this point, but taking over as lead for Chili Scenes. No, I didn't think about it much then. I, 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 thought more, I thought more highly of Mary Beth Hurt than I did of me as a lead. I guess I compensated for that fear by putting it all on her. <laughs> I just felt like I still, I just sort of felt, I, I remember, I just sort of felt like I had to show up. You know, I mean, it was like they would take it from there. And I didn't really think of myself as the lead, but I, I, I definitely would today. I don't, maybe I just wasn't conscious enough to think of myself as a lead. What was the experience of that shoot like for you? It was fun. I mean, they, uh, they wanted me to stay away from Margot Kidder because we were raised in hell. I met Gloria Graham and I hung out with her. Uh, Mary Beth was great. She was great. You know, she was a very she was a very acclaimed stage actress in New York, so I had, had, had admiration for her. And Joan was Joan. Joan was her usual steady self. But they definitely didn't want me running off and going running around with Margie because you know Amy Robinson and, and Griffin Dunn and Mark Metcalf produced Chili Scenes, right? So they knew me. They were all in New York and Mary Beth. We were all from New York. You know, we all knew each other. It was a fun project because of that. I mean, Amy and, and Griffin and Mark are, are Mark played the, the, the ex-husband. There wasn't much room for me to think of myself as being a lead in that company. You know, that was that company was so was already so established that I was just one of many, if at all. They were, I think, a little bit more along along the way than they. Maybe that's why they were so nervous. Did I read right that you and Margot Kidder were married for like six days? Yeah, it don't take me long to look at a horseshoe. No, no, we had a big fight and it was a big embarrassment. And I was characterized as obsessed and insane. And we had a fight in London. I had to turn tail and run. Yeah, Marky and I ran around and, you know, it didn't turn out so good. Now, when the movie was released as uh, Head Over Heels, 
How was the reception for it? Beats me. I think it just went the way of Cutter's Way and every other movement I ever did, like called a, a, a classic or something, and given some sort of special screening after it didn't do well at from the opening level. Now, I know they changed the ending of Chili Scenes. Did you have to come back for the, the shoot of that? I don't remember. Maybe. How does it end? I'm sitting on the park bench by myself. I don't watch myself, you know, which is a mistake, and I regret it. But I just didn't have the guts to go in and watch myself and watch the movie. And, and I especially, I, I learned the hard way. Not I can't go to screenings of a movie that I'm in unless I'm not that, unless I'm totally incidental. It's too hard to sit there amongst people watching you for two hours and then be afterwards supposed to go out and have dinner with them. You don't know who you are. <laughs> it's a real identity crisis, as my father would say. <laughs> John, you're having an identity crisis. When it comes to approaching a role, what do you generally do? Do you research, write the backstory, or do you just, how, how is that for you? I don't know if I've ever answered that question. I mean, it's, a, it's sort of interesting today that I kind of do have an answer, and it's kind of like you go through a script and you find something that only a friend of mine, Ken Risley, taught me. is you find this something that only you think that you as an actor can say, that you connect with. And the other thing is mostly oral interp for me, is just going through the script and, and moving the story forward with a sense of oral interpretation, meaning what emphasis, what do you... What words you emphasize that are going to enhance the, the storytelling aspect of it. Like, how do you connect the connectivity? Because when you work on the theater, you, you go from A to Z in the course of an evening and you have to connect the dots and the playwright connects the dots for you, you know, from one scene to the next in the narrative. But when you work in film, it's so disjointed and you shoot one scene one day and another scene the next that so you have to go home and you have to do that for yourself. You have to put the whole thing together before you show up day one. And I don't know. I don't know about all this stuff about research. Uh, I was always told by certain directors that research got in the way. You know, like I mean, when we said when we did Heartbeat, and I wanted it to be about Jack Kerouac, Don Byram said, you know, that's just going to get in the way, man. I want to make a more fun-loving film. And he was all over me because I kept trying to impersonate Jack Kerouac as sort of subjunctive character. And he said, it's not playing because it's not, it's not funny. It's not, you know, it's not energetic. And he was right. So that was an instance where me reading Maggie Cassidy and learning about Jack Kerouac kind of got in the way. So I guess another instance is it, it depends on what they want. You know, if they, if they, if they cast you because you look like the hillside striker, and I guess they want it to be, uh, you know, more factual. But if somebody's doing a, 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 a like but I think Byron was doing with Heartbeat, I think he was doing a kind of a, a panache. You know, he was doing a style and, and introducing the idea of a menage a trois between two guys and a girl who all three loved each other and had very much an influence on each other's lives. So he was funny because somebody like, and again, Jessica Lang actually came in and read for that movie. And she was younger then. And I think she had done Francis farmer or something and she was incredible and she was the only one and I, I sat in to read with them she was the only actress that came in that st really started talking about Jack Kerouac and Neil Cassidy and Maggie Cat I mean uh, what's her name Carol Cassidy and really knew her stuff and when she got up and left I said wow she was really something she's really prepared just like what you're asking about she'd done her homework and done her research on these people 
And when she left, I said, she, she's, a really, she's the only actress that's come in here that really knows who, who these characters are. And, and Byron looked at her and, and looked at me and looked at her and said, nah, she's a model. <laughs> I said, yeah, well, he screwed up, but he's a model on her way to win an Academy Award. <laughs> so you never know how much research and then... I don't know. I've never been in a situation where anybody ever pointed out that you didn't do your homework or you don't know you could have fleshed this character out with more information. But, you know, then I don't work anymore, so what difference does it make? Well, while I've got you on the phone, I wanted to ask you, how was it working with Ivan Passar for Cutter's Way? Oh, man, we just did the whole interview section about Cutter and Bone and Ivan Cutter's Way, and my producer, Paul Gurian, did not he fell out with Ivan Passer. He's the one that found Ivan Passer as a, as a uh, co-director uh, with uh, Milo, uh, what's his name, and from Poland, Czechoslovakia. Milos Forman. Milos Forman. So he came well touted. And by the time my friend Paul Gurian, who produced it, uh, had spoken to Ivan Passer, who tried to work with Ivan Passer, he was convinced that Ivan Passer had been annihilated by some Czechoslovakian guard crossing the border had been shot and taken his clothes from him. And he, the, the, the guard that shot him crossed the border pretending to be Ivan Passer and that that was Ivan, Ivan Passer was really gone because he couldn't, he was so disappointed of Ivan. Ivan. Ivan's way of working was, was exactly his name. It was very passive. It was very allowing actors to find something that they found that worked for them, was exciting for them, that they wanted to do. And he was not into rehearsal. And he was really very, very uh, up, in, uh, up into letting things happen. And I, I, he would be very, very congratulatory after every take. He would say, that, that was wonderful. That was great. That was really, really good. To the point where I asked him, he did one take and said, that was great. That was great. Do it again. And I said, okay. And he said, okay, that was wonderful. Truly wonderful. That was wonderful. Do it again. And I said, okay, okay. And he said, ah, that was, uh, that was terrific. That was terrific. Uh, you know, that was better than the first two. Do, 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 so do it again. And finally, I walked over to him and I said, Ivan, if it was wonderful and it was terrific and it was great, then what else could it be? And he looked at me and he said, it could be fantastic. So that's the story that I tell about Ivan Passer. It could be fantastic. Yeah, so instead of saying, let's go for fantastic, he waited until you got maybe to the threshold of it and reminded you. It was very positive. But at times, the positiveness of it was debilitating because I, I, I wanted to rehearse. You know, I wanted to get everybody, I wanted to find things that were more specific. And I ended up just sounding like, you know, Blackbeard the Pirate. Well, the eye patch helped. Well, everybody made fun of that. And I was like, what the? So that, I shot myself in the foot, literally. Because that is the way that I spoke then. I smoked a pack of camels a day and I drank. And that was, that was pretty much my voice. And it got lumped in with, uh, Robert Newton or something. Hark me, buckos. That would be his problem. Yeah, I wasn't doing it on purpose. The the chemistry between you and Jeff Bridges on that film is just, it comes through as being terrific. What was it like working with him? Jeff is an oddball. Jeff is a very funny, strange, quiet, you know, incredibly generous presence. He seems like he's always kind of into some kind of weird guru type person showing up and making his day. You know, like somebody's going to fall out of the sky and go, ah, Jeff. <laughs> I don't know. 
he's a really super guy. I went to see him and he was doing a, a no, I was doing a play on Broadway, I think, and he came backstage years later and said, hey, man, you know, he's really a, a great guy. A Gurian went to his house to get him to be, to, you know, they needed a movie star and they weren't going to get that with me. And they, I think that Dustin Hoffman was supposed to play Cutter and apparently he didn't, so I did. And I think that was because of Yvonne, because he saw me as Cutter, not Bone, which I originally went in for. And then I think they needed to get like some, you know, really great looking guy like Jeff. And he obliged him. But that's not the way he is at all. I mean, so he's more bizarre than Cutter. <laughs> Jeff Bridges himself is actually a more bizarre character than Alex Cutter in the movie. I don't know. Just uh, I guess he, I guess he gets introduced to a lot of people. And, and you know, he kind of epitomizes that, the California culture more so than anybody else, in a way. I mean, his history and his dad and all that. He's kind of stayed in that niche of California guy working in film since the time he was, you know, his father's son. And then the whole family, the whole family is actors, right? The one thing that always sticks out for me on your CV is um, Chud. How did you get involved with Chud? Chud was originally a labor of love with a, a guy named Doug Cheek, who was the director, and he, he did a lot of uh, editing, and he got this movie together with, uh, who's the guy that wrote it? He's a great guy, so it was up in, in Boston. Uh, was it Parnell Hall? Yeah, Parnell, and, and uh, who's the other one? Uh, Shepard Abbott? Shep, yeah. And I think the three of them collaborated and created a movie that they went to Danny Stern with. And me, maybe, I think maybe Danny before. And they, we wanted to do a movie about actually radiated people that were living in the underground of New York City in the sewers. Uh, in the, I don't know, the sewers. I guess it's the sewers, but pretty elaborate maze of underground, you know, cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers. And they had been deformed by this leakage of radiation. So it was per, at first, originally, it was, it was like a, almost political expose because we wanted real people and that they rea- the reality was that they congregated and then they uh, uh, festered to the point where they became cannibalistic and that they had to be killed and it was unfortunate and it was all the fault of the state and this creep named, what's his name, uh, George Martin played. And then the whole thing sort of evolved into just kind of this goofy rubber mask <laughs> chase being chased around, you know, and, and lost that uh, literary edge, you know, that, that political edge and just became a uh, kind of a, it became kind of a spoof, kind of made fun of itself. And it made fun of the horror movie, it made fun of itself for, for being, you know, about radiation underground and, and leakage in the state. And then it, made fun of itself in being a, a scary movie with scary monsters with rubber, you know, masks. I don't know. It's got a cult following. The biggest problem with uh, Chud was between me and Danny Stern trading off whose turn it was to say, holy shit, that was our, our biggest acting challenge on that film. It's your turn. No, man, I said it last time. You didn't hear me. Oh, you said it. What'd you say? I said, holy shit, it's your turn. Okay. Holy shit. It it looks like you have a lot of stuff coming out over the next uh, uh, year, year and a half here. W- what do? kind of stuff are you working on? Yeah, th- that's what it looks like. I've been seeing like Last Rampage, uh, The Tale, uh, Searching for Fortune, uh, Broom Street Boys. 
Uh, I don't think Broom Street boys will ever see the light of day. No? Tail. What's that? Uh, let's see. Uh, you play someone named Bill, uh, directed by Jennifer Fox. Yeah, I'm the bad guy, man. I, I, you know, I have this uh, horse rancher. I invite, you know, 13-year-old wannabe athletes, and I'm a coach, and I goose them. And then this girl meets me, meets up with me 30 years later at a sporting night benefit and accuses me of molesting her when she was way back then. And I'm fat and old, and I say I didn't do it. You you must be talking about you're crazy. But we have to get here. Let's go. This girl is out of her mind when she's not really. Yeah, I did that last October. That's legit. I don't know if she's ever going to get it produced. I mean, shown. Rampage was one day, and I was I think I was completely miscast that they couldn't have been nice. Patrick, what's his name? Uh, Robert Patrick. Robert Patrick and Ben Day. Uh, what Ben? What's his name? David Bruce Davison. And I just did a day on that a night. So they know big moves. So be it is the biggest movie that I have done that might see the light of day. There's a screening of it. And it's just a simple story about a girl chasing after her lineage. It'll be on Lifetime. So many trillions of movies are made these days. They're like cars. I think there's a movie for every car. So what else are you up to these days? Nothing. I'm trying to get out of my apartment in L.A. and go live somewhere else and uh, lose weight, which I've been trying to do for the last 20 years. I mean, it's amazing. My gut. My gut is amazing. My gut is, is my gut is going to win an Emmy well before I do, ever do. I, I just saw you recently on Elementary. I don't remember you being that big. And that maybe they covered it up or I tried to, you know, my, it, my stomach bloats to the point where I'm uncomfortable. I look like I'm pregnant. And I don't get it. It's not, it doesn't matter what I eat. It just blows up. I guess it's candida or yeast or all the things that you got to like go on some sort of starvation diet to get rid of. Take Santac. But it's been the, it's, that's been the, uh, my stomach is, is my problem. Other than that, I think I would look pretty good. You know, they go, they go. It's like my friend Tommy Caulfield here looked at me the last time and we were talking about my career. He's always talking to me about my career. And he looked at me and he I said, I don't know. I just don't work anymore. That's not the end of the world. It happens to everybody. You know, everybody has to carry Grant at age 70. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, Herd, but I mean, come on, ask yourself, did you look like this when you started out? And I said, no. And he went, well, <laughs> like that was it, you know? You know, when you, you just, I get, you know, I'm 70 years old. I mean, you, I guess you just physically deteriorate unless you're Tim Matheson, you know, and you go to the gym every day. And everybody remarks, my girlfriend, I mean, that's the thing that she remarks on the most now. Oh, look at him. Oh, my God. Look what happened to him. He needs a facelift. Oh, Michael Douglas had nine facelifts. Why can't you have one? You know, if you really want to work, John, you should do something. Yeah, right. Well, there's, there's no... The working is what keeps the weight off. When you stop working, most actors, you know, they don't have a lot of hobbies. You know, they don't have any much to do. We don't all own a horse ranch. And uh, a lot of us don't get married. A lot of we have kids, and a lot of that money goes to child support. I think they should do a study of, like, what happens to the 50-, 60-year-old actor. Either that or we end up looking like Bill Shatner. That's what this guy used to say about me. When I did a thing many years ago called The Scarlet Letter, 
they had a great big a video truck set up outside the village of, of, of uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne days for the for the book, The Scarlet Letter. They created a whole wood stock, you know, stockade village. And at the end of every day, we would come walking through the gates of the village out into the real, back into the real world with our costumes on. And this guy used to stand in the doorway of this gigantic video trailer. And as I walked by, he'd say, young Bill Shatner. <laughs> and I went, oh my God, I'm quitting now. That's my only thing to look forward to. Then we're going to hear from producer Amy Robinson. So you had acted in several things. You had acted in TV series. You acted in Mean Streets, uh, mm-hmm. some, um, some series. But how did you decide to go into producing? How did Chilly Scenes of Winter kind of come about for you? I don't think it was sort of a conscious decision to go into producing. I was always a big reader, and I always read a lot of books all my life. And um, Anne Beattie was a writer that I really admired from her New Yorker short stories. And when I saw that she had a novel, it was her first novel coming out, I made sure that I was going to buy it, even though I didn't usually buy hardbacks because they were expensive. But I, I bought it, and I read it, and I thought, you know, it was a wonderful book. And it was also kind of, I think the way I related to Anne's writing was it was very much about my generation and she was about the same age as I was and I was very taken with the book and I had this idea that it it would be a good movie and it was uh, I think it was during the summer and I was hanging around with um, Griffin Dunn and Mark Metcalf who were both also actors and we were out of work and we were trying to do a play in New York together and doing various things and uh, I said, well, I read this book, and I think it would be a good movie. And I gave it to them, and they both read it. And we just sort of decided to try to option it and produce the movie. It wasn't sort of a conscious decision to become a producer. So what was that like as far as uh, t- obtaining the rights? I mean, this was all brand new stuff for you, I imagine. Yeah, well, we had all had at least some experience in in show business, and I think what we weren't that aware of was once a book has come out, it usually has been already exposed to people because a lot of books are shopped around in Hollywood in manuscript form. And so um, I called the agent of – we we got – the name of the agent by, I'm sure, calling the publisher. I don't actually remember how we got it, but I'm pretty sure that's how we got it. And I called the agent, and he was a very old-time Hollywood agent, and he said, oh, well, this is very interesting because it was written by a woman and you're a woman, which I thought was kind of funny. But what we decided to do is... And I'm not, you know, maybe Griffin and Mark, I'm sure, will have a stronger memory. We somehow found out that Ann Beattie was teaching at Harvard and lived in Boston, and we decided we would go up and meet her in person and try to convince her to let us option the book. So Griffin and Mark and I all went up to Boston, and I guess we had called her beforehand, but we knocked on her door, and she thought, God, who are these three characters that I could have made up in one of my stories and let us in and gave us food and alcohol. And um, we all talked and, and she said, sure, you can option my book. 
so um, we didn't really have that much money, but Mark had just gotten an acting job, which was in Animal House, and um, it, it, which at, nobody knew was going to be what it was. It was just sort of this strange comedy, low-budget movie that a lot of actors that we knew were in, and he used the money that he got paid from Animal House to pay for the option of the book. Once you had the property, do you then go right to Joan, or, or what's the next step for you? No, what what we did, I think, was we started to think about, you know, we sort of started breaking it down, and we were thinking about how could this be a movie, and uh, and I guess her agent had put a little squib in the trade papers that the book had been optioned. And it was a lesson that I think we learned from this first um, go round into producing, which is you're as a producer, you're really only as good as your material. And we got a call from a, a writer that we knew in New York named uh, Michael Weller. And Michael said, I really love this book. I read it and I'd like to write the script. And I'm working with Milos Forman right now on hair and he would executive produce it. And so we were pretty excited, Milos Forman, and we knew Michael. He was a wonderful writer. And we ended up going out to the set of hair, which was in the desert, and we met with them. And I honestly and can't remember why it didn't work out, but it did not work out. We then got a call from Joan, who had also read the book, and said, I would be very interested in writing and directing this. And um, we were pretty excited about that because she'd done uh, Hester Street at that point, and she'd also done although I'm not sure it had come out yet, Between the Lines, which starred John Hurd, and we always pictured John Hurd playing Charles. And, and um, again, you know, Joan and her late husband, Ray, were taking a flyer on these young people who hadn't done that much. But we were kind of savvy, and we were cute, and we had some connections, and we had the material, you know, we had optioned it. And Joan, of course, was literally the only woman director who was bankable in Hollywood. There were there was nobody else at that point in time, I don't believe, that anyone would make a movie with. And because it was Joan, the way we entered into the movie business was through the studios because we went to all the different studios and we pitched the project. Griffin and Mark and I got very good at this pitch that we would do because we were actors and we rehearsed it and, you know, we, we, we got good at pitching and we were able, uh, uh, because of the nature of the material and also because of Joan's participation to get a deal at uh, for her to write the script and hopefully to direct it. But we didn't really, you know, in those days you didn't, we weren't thinking, well, gee, maybe it'll never get made. We'll just stop at the script stage. We were gung-ho and um, we got a deal at 20th Century Fox with a young executive there named Claire Townsend, who was also the same age as the characters in the book <laughs> and really loved the material. So that's how the beginning of it came to pass. And so once this starts to move along, how much hope do you see for this becoming a feature-length motion picture? 
Well, I think we had a lot of hope because we were naive, enthusiastic, and we had a lot of belief in it, which is really what you need to get movies made. You just have to keep going, and we were really prepared to do that. And we also had Joan, who was very committed to it, and Claire, who eventually left 20th Century Fox but loved the project and took it with her when she went to United Artists. A lot of stars aligned in the right direction. And once the the project finally gets its green light, kind of what was your role as the producer on the film? I mean, what what were you kind of responsible for in that capacity? The three of us were responsible for everything that uh, creative producers do. You know, we were we were very involved with all of the casting along with Joan, and we were very involved with putting the production together. Um, where we were going to shoot the film. Um, We ended up shooting the exteriors in Salt Lake. We at first thought we'd shoot them in New York, but, you know, there was better tax breaks in in Utah, and we wanted snow, and we knew we would get snow there. And then we shot all the interiors, actually, in Los Angeles on the old Culver City lot, which was the lot where they shot Gone with the Wind. It's now very much more upscale, but it was pretty old. And it was a very, for even for United Artists, which, you know, United Artists had a kind of a policy that if they greenlit the picture and if you stayed within your budget, they left you alone when you were making the movie. That was all changed after Heaven's Gate, which actually came out right around the same time as Chili Scenes and sort of was terrible for us, but we were a very small budget for a studio picture, even in those days, but we were, we stayed within our budget. We were never doing anything crazy. So we were all kind of left pretty much alone. You know, they were involved in some of the casting decisions. I will say that, but they, John was um, everybody's first choice, and uh, they liked Mary Beth and and Peter. Uh, We didn't really have big problems uh, with with the studio uh, in any way, shape, or form. What was it like working with Gloria Graham? It was fabulous. I mean, she was such an amazing character, and. You know, she was also this legend we'd seen in A Lonely Place and a lot of her other movies. And and she was really like a sort of a link to old Hollywood. And she knew places in Beverly Hills to, you know, some of those negligees that she wore in the movie where you, you know, the, the old time people who actually knew how to make those costumes and make them look perfect. And she she was one of a kind. Uh, it was very, very wonderful to be able to work with her. I'm curious why you weren't in the film when Mark and Griffin were. I had a scene in the film which never made it into the film because it didn't make sense with the way it was toward the end. And I was playing a little little tiny part of a roommate of Mary Beth when she leaves her husband, Ox, and John tries to see her again, and it really didn't work. So it was reshot with with her living by herself. What was the experience of making the movie like for you? It was very hard because we'd never done this before. And I think it was kind of nerve wracking on, on one, the one hand, and it was fantastic. It was fabulous to, for the three of us to have 
sat and found a book and imagined what it would be like to make a movie and then for it all to come into being. And it's always, to me, still amazing when I make movies that that happens, you know, that you imagine something and then people build sets and there are actors saying lines and it's always kind of an incredible miracle that it all comes together. You had mentioned Heaven's Gate and just kind of how that affected the production. Did that actually affect the... Well, it didn't affect the production. It it actually affected us more. uh, When the movie was finished, uh, Heaven's Gate was in the midst of all of its crises going on. And so United Artists was just in a meltdown mode because of it. And so our movie was kind of... There wasn't much attention paid to it because everybody was just focused on this horrible event that was going on in Montana and how it was bringing the company down. And a lot of people lost their jobs and other people came in. It was, you know, that's a whole other story that it just was the same time period. And it also, the the policy at UA changed after that. You know, it wasn't the same. um, That policy of leaving filmmakers alone, I think, had been started by Mike Medavoy, and he left the company, and then that policy sort of changed after Heaven's Gate. I imagine they had probably no money to help market the film either. Right. And and the the film had... um, you know, we, we, we also, they insisted that we change the name of the film. They said Chilly Scenes of Winter was too depressing and it should be called Head Over Heels. Or we came up with that, but we didn't really like it. And it had a very kind of zany looking one sheet where, where John Heard glasses had windshield wipers on them. And the initial release in New York was not successful at all and not well reviewed even. So it was very, um, after all of that and, and frankly, you know, we realized later that it all happened very quickly. I mean, it was from the time that we optioned the book to the time the movie came out, it was probably less than two years, which was amazing. But what happened, we figured it was over. You know, we we were out on the streets handing out flyers, trying to get people to go to the theater, and it just wasn't working. But what happened is that United Artists formed a new division called United Artists Classics. What they did in the beginning, a guy named Ira Deutschman was one of the principals there, uh, was that they went back to filmmakers who had made UA films that weren't uh, terribly successful, and they said, is there anything you would do to change your movie? And we were one of the movies they came to and asked. And we said, yes, we would change the title back to Chilly Scenes of Winter, and we would change the ending. Because even though the ending the original ending was similar to the book. The tone of it wasn't. So Joan went back in and recut the end uh, so that the ending, which is in the movie now, which is John running in the park and they're not together. There was a kind of this sort of too saccharine, happy ending of them in the original film. And it was re-released and it got good reviews and I mean it didn't set the world on fire but it was a completely 
different response to the movie. And so, again, the stars just align for us to, to be able to get it to be released within, I don't know, I can't remember. I think it was within a year. Oh, wow. That's amazing that it was that fast. Yeah. I mean, it was incredible. It was really incredible. Well, I do have to ask, after that, it seemed like the acting really diminished in the producing. I mean, you've been producing since Chili Scene, since 1979 now. Yeah, I wasn't really cut out to be an actor. That's why in the early part of this interview, I didn't really want to talk about my acting career. I mean, I, I was a very privileged and lucky to be a part of a iconic movie, Mean Streets, and I was in a couple of other projects I'm, I'm very proud of. But I think that what I learned personally was that I was much more cut out for being a producer than being an actor. I enjoyed it more. When you're an actor, you, you're involved in the middle of a process. You know, you have to get chosen and then you do your job and then you leave and then you don't know how the movie's going to get edited or what's going to happen. When you're a producer, you start from ground zero and you go till the bitter end. And I find, I still find that process very invigorating. It's very difficult and you have to really love the material because sometimes it takes a very, very long time. But I, again, I think from this experience, I knew that that's what I was more well-equipped and talented to do. I acted a little bit after that, but I just sort of phased out of it. Unlike, unlike Griffin and Mark, who continued to act, because they, they loved it more than I did. And I think Mark particularly was very conflicted and didn't really continue producing Griffin and I stayed as partners for many, many years and produced a lot of movies together, but he always continued to act. Well, since then, you've done so many amazing projects. I mean, Baby, It's You, I absolutely love, After Hours, White Palace. I mean, so many great things. Well, thanks. I mean, again, I just go back to the idea of material, you know, and I think with Baby, It's You, which was Griffin's and my second movie, we had this idea that was sort of based on aspects of my life and we knew John Sayles of of his work. And so we went to him and said, what about this idea? And he responded to it. And again, it was the material that got us the talent. And it was true with After Hours and Marty too. I mean, I, I obviously knew Marty from having worked in Mean Streets, but I knew that he might respond to this very dark New York comedy. I think it has been the way I have just always functioned as a producer is to base it on the material. Did I read your name being associated with uh, the Deep Blue Goodbye? Yes. John D. McDonald? Yes. I've been working on that for 20 years. Um, I don't know. We were We were... Two weeks from shooting, and uh, the star had an accident. So I, I'm hopeful it can come back together. But right now, it's uh, a little in the gray zone. I'm interested because I wrote a, a pretty extensive article about John D. McDonald's 
uh, movies and the attempts to get Travis McGee up on the silver screen, you know, the Rod Taylor, the the Sam Elliott. And I was so excited because a couple of years ago I had heard that Robert Downey Jr. was going to do it. Then I heard that Leo DiCaprio was going to do it. And I was just like, oh, this is fantastic. I can't wait. Nope. So No, I, I mean, was... I, I sometimes think that John D., um, you know, who cast a very jaundiced eye on most of the things that were made into movies of his, is, you know, controlling it from heaven above. But uh, we'll see. I haven't completely given up. Well, I, I hope that that happens for you, because I'm a big uh, Travis McGee fan, so I would well, love to see that happen. Well, he's the greatest. Travis, you know, when it went down this last time, I just I just said to Travis, who I think of as a person I know very, very well now, I said, you know, Travis, you're just not a movie. But it could be the start of something beautiful, you know? Oh, no. I mean, he's a great, iconic American character, and... Let's see. I'll let you know, Mike. Let's hear from producer and the actor who played Dr. Mark, Griffin Dunn. Chilly Scenes, as far as I know, was your second theatrical role, but I was curious as far as how you decided to actually kind of get into the acting game. Yeah, it was never my intention to really be a producer, almost first. I went to high school, and my parents were... were well, thinking my father, I grew up around this business in Los Angeles and did not want to kind of pursue that. You know, I wanted to be in a different line of work than my own parents. So that's what I was thinking about when I was in high school. And, uh, you know, I was really interested in the, the media and in journalism and stuff. But the teacher sort of talked me into auditioning for Zoo Story, the, the uh, Edward Albee play. And I had to say I was hooked. You know, it was like, it was what I should be doing. And Shortly after getting kicked out of that school, I moved to New York. I went on to try to be an actor, you know, working at many, many jobs before I finally got a job. How did you and um, Mark Metcalf and Amy Robinson meet? I met Amy through a, uh, a guy, in, a journalist named Jesse Pornbluth. And then I introduced him to Mark. And Mark was one of my closer friends at the time. The three of us just sort of clicked. And immediately, uh, all three of us were... were Struggling in different ways, but struggling actors nonetheless. You know, Amy had established herself in Mean Streets, but you know, she could tell you that was a, uh, you know, it didn't, it did, she didn't get a lot of bounce off it the way the other, the way the guys did. Uh, Mark was, had done a lot of plays. They were much more experienced than I was as actors. But the three of us kind of all, you know, had the same sort of taste in things and read the New Yorker and liked the same authors and turned each the other on the new authors we didn't know of. We were all we were all pretty pretty well read, and uh, always planned to like do something other than just wait for the next job as actors. So we we had that in common as well. And Amy was the one you know who found the book. It was the Ann Beatty's first book. She probably told you we went to Los Angeles. We went to uh, Cambridge. Looked her up in the phone book. Called her from the corner and went over. And uh, she let us in. She said it was like three of her characters walked in her living room. She called up her agent, she said all she wanted was to part as a, a, a waitress with a beehive hairdo in, in, in a coffee shop. And when we agreed, she picked up the phone and called up her agent, who was no longer alive, but a legendary guy named H.N. Swanson or Swanee, represented, you know, Faulkner and William, I don't know about William, but um, some of the greatest writers around, you know, from the 30s and 40s up to now. And he was outraged. 
that three total strangers walked in and she gave them the rights. But that, you know, that started it. And, and it was really sort of the first, you know, the little, that little part as an actor in Chili Scenes, you know, had an unexpected uh, result uh, on where I worked. You know, there were places like Public Theater and Joseph Pass Public Theater and, uh, uh, you know, various theater companies that I couldn't even get an audition at. And, you know, suddenly those doors were open to me. So I, I that sort of began for me a sort of uh, acting and producing simultaneous career. I'm curious how you guys kind of divvied up the work when it came to what each of the three of you were doing as producers on the film. I don't think we, you know, had it written down anywhere. I think we just sort of covered each other. And um, I handled most of the music rights because I volunteered to do it. So that sort of fell under my domain. Uh, Mark was very good with, you know, the, you know, for such a creative guy, he was really good at budget and cost estimates and all that kind of stuff that I'm not at all good at. And Amy was very good, uh, you know, on the political side of it, too. And, you know, she could be very tough and, uh, you know, doesn't back down from anyone. It was quite fearless. So everybody kind of brought their own previous thing to it. It must have been quite an eye-opener for you to go into that music world. And, I mean, because that's a whole different ballgame from the rest of the movie business. Just I know people have driven themselves crazy dealing with music rights. Not so much on Chili Scenes. Uh, but when Amy and I did Baby It's You, there we dealt with some real, me personally dealt with some real true gangsters. And I did extraordinary things to get the right for, for certain songs because it was, it was under something called Favored Nation, which meant that I, I could only pay the same amount to every single person. But we got, you know, unbelievable people to agree to it, with Springsteen being one of them. But on this, there was a great harmonica player who just died. He played, uh, his name was Toots Thielman, and he worked with Django Reinhardt, the great jazz guitarist. We brought him in from Holland to play us the harmonica that's in the movie for the score. I remember we did the score up at, um, not far from where I'm standing right now, actually, in Malibu, way up the coast, and the band had a recording studio that was way up the coast uh, on the Pacific Coast Highway. I remember we did the score there. It was very exciting. How were you guys involved in the casting of the film? Uh, very much. You know, in the room for the reading, deciding kind of who we liked the best. I think Joan knew of our passion and vision for John Hurd in this role, you know, years before we met, had, had been sort of laid out. We just always saw him in this role. And, uh, you know, for reading the, 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 both the, the mom, the part that Gloria Graham played, and, and, uh, and Laura... There was a lot of reading on both coasts. And had you already known uh, Mary Beth Hurd or um, any of the other actors before you started casting? I knew them as actors. I mean, it was very weird for me because I was 22 or 23 and everybody was considerably older and had a good deal more attention. And the look on people's face when they would go into the room to see this kid as one of the producers was something I got a lot of shit for later on. It was like, why is this child auditioning me? And, and 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 they were right, because I was really an out-of-work actor who was in awe of the very people I was supposed to be sitting in judgment of, deciding whether or not they'd work for us or not. So it was a, it was a funny position to be in. Yeah, you're one of those actors who you could pull off playing a teenager or in your early 20s for a long time oh, once yeah. you left that. A- absolutely, yeah. You must uh, have looked like you were 12 at this point. You know, and people were rather befuddled. 
by a parent. And what was your relationship like with Joan Micklin Silver? Uh, it, you know, it was very good. We both we we uh, we both like her and Ray. You know, her their her daughters were were around our ages. You know, we really admired uh, Hester Street, the movie uh, about the Boston paper, Between the Lines. And she got great actors to work with her. And I would say she was the grown-up and the, her producers were the kids. Ray, her husband, had a real estate company and we worked out of those offices. And, you know, sometimes we'd have to be told to keep our voices down. We were getting, like, roughhousing in the grown-up real estate office. We, we adored her. I think it was a really successful collaboration. Now, you said that the movie helped open doors when it came to some of the acting roles. Did it also mm. make the next producing job a little bit easier for you? I think so, yes. I mean, everything, in retrospect, was easier then, you know, to get deals and development deals, you know, fly to California for meetings. And, that, and people just didn't think twice about that stuff. But, yeah, we had, you know, Mark, Amy, and I got got a lot of attention because of our unique situation. We got we got a lot of press. I think it was the New York Magazine profile of us. And, and you know, in the, in the course of this, we dealt with a lot of agents. We did a movie through a major studio, so we kind of knew our way around a bit. So getting the next one off the ground, especially with, you know, John Sayles, who everybody was very interested in working with, Officer Caucus 7, it wasn't that difficult. There's always that thing of, uh, and this applies to anything, when you first start doing something that you've always wanted, you are, and you know, you're doing work that you love. It was more helpful. We got the first one made because we had no idea how hard it was. You know, it's what we didn't know that worked in our favor. You know, the more you work, the more you sort of see how you fit in and how you're suddenly you have a, a track record that's based on your last grosses of your last movies and all that kind of shit. Then you're just like everybody else. But, but um, you kind of don't realize. You take for granted how fresh you are when you're first starting out. You said he didn't really want to be an actor when he first started out, and you know this uh, producing kind of really hit with you. I was curious when it came to putting on the director's cap, how easy or difficult was that? Having seen what it's like from that side of the camera, that was heaven. They put everything that I'd learned as an actor and everything that in the common sense and practicalities I'd learned as a producer, it all fell into place for being a director. It was a perfect synergy for decades of, of doing both professions. Well, it must have been something, I mean, as a producer, you have worked with some of the top talent. I mean, to work with Martin Scorsese or, or uh, John Sayles, I mean, so many great people that you worked with over the years, you must have sucked them up like a sponge. Yeah, uh, yes, but not thinking, oh, someday I'm going to do that with, you know, the majority of the people. Marty and then Landis, who I worked with as an actor, were the first ones that really, they made it look so much fun. I mean, I love their approach so much. But I didn't think, oh, when I become a director, I'm going to do that. At some point, once my kind of acting career had sort of was dwindling and I wasn't getting the parts I was hoping and all that kind of shit, I was thinking of my next move and directing had been on my mind far more than I realized. And and I'd written something. I'd written a short film and got a finance through Showtime. And, and that's when I said, oh, my God. I love this. Wow. So so I, I was very fortunate to be able to switch. You mentioned uh, John Landis. Do you think that Chilly Scenes of Winter helped you uh, move into an American werewolf in London? Absolutely. I, I don't know even know why or how, but, but that was exactly at that time. I'd done nothing. Nothing. And, and John didn't even read me. I'll never know why I did it. 
we, we talked for 15, 20 minutes and then they sent the script over and he asked me if I wanted to do it. Yeah, I'll never, I'll never quite wrap my brain around that one because it's odd because I'd actually, I thought he remembered me from before when I auditioned for him for uh, this, I did audition for, for Animal House in the Tom Hope road. And I thought I was under the impression I'd come very, very close to getting it. And John didn't even remember meeting me. And then, of course, the great irony is, back to Chili Scenes, we options, we had the money to option the book from the money that Mark made from Animal House. So it was, uh, something was going on. Switching gears just a little bit, and I don't want to take up too much of your time. I, I feel bad, you know, hearing you standing on the streets of New York and everything. I, so. No, I'm in the standing in the streets of, uh, of, um, well, Pacific Palisades. I forgot. It's not your your fault. I just was shooting all day, and I and I, I thought I wasn't supposed to, and and I was, and I just finished. I haven't got much left in me myself. So, but anyway, we can. If you don't get enough, we can pick this up later. When I see your name come up in the thanks for movies like The Cove and Capturing the Freedmen, why is that? What, what's your involvement with those types of films? Well, I didn't know my name was in The Cove. Both the both filmmakers, I'm very uh, I'm very close friends with. And uh, Fisher, who's really the producer of the Cove, and but Andrew, the director. You know, when you're um, when you're making a movie and you have friends that are, you know, who are not only your friends because they're good people, but you take advantage of their of their talent and their their points of view and their taste and their humor and advice and you know, it's a it's a it's a business where you know, getting support and having people wish you well. You know, this is small numbers. So I, for both cases, I, I offer, I must have seen early rough cuts. And uh, in Andrew's case, I turned him on to the editor that he, I had worked with the editor and, and I introduced that and I, I pushed it really hard for the job. And Andrew was one of the first people, I was one of the first people Andrew spoke to when he was, before he realized about the, uh, the predatory, sexual predatory history of this family or the father rather. Um, it was just a sweet little doc about a birthday clown that our kid went to their birthday parties with this guy. Um, then he found a much bigger story, and I'm sure I wasn't the only one, but I was one of several of his friends going, sorry, you're going to have to make it into a feature and start all over again. And can I ask you, what are you working on these days? Uh, I'm here uh, as an actor doing um, uh, Jill Soloway's new TV series uh, based on a book called I Love Dick with Kevin Klein and and Catherine Hahn. And I'm making a documentary uh, about my aunt, who's the writer John Gideon. Oh, okay. Terrific. Well, great. Uh, like I said, I don't want to keep you, so... Yeah, well, uh, I appreciate I'll... that. But if you, you know, need to touch base, Amy said she'd do a to me, too. All right, my man. Thanks so much. Let's hear from producer and the actor who played Ox, Mark Metcalf. I didn't realize until uh, just recently that you are a fellow uh, University of Michigan alumnus. Oh, yeah. Did you go there? Yeah. 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 I graduated in speech and theater, finally, after a long time. Oh, fantastic. Did you? Were you in speech and theater, or did they still... Because the radio used to be in speech and theater. What, what was your major? Mine was uh, film and video and communications. Oh, yeah. They, they've expanded it since I was there. I worked for the uh, PBS station, and I ran a camera for them, and then took a couple of radio classes. But mostly I was... And always in the freeze building. Is the freeze building still there when you were there? Oh, yeah, it sure is. And I was on uh, WCBN down in the basement of that. Okay. All right. Yeah. It's kind of a dungeon. I lived in the 
up above for a while. For about a year, I lived uh, above the True Blood Auditorium up there. I didn't have a plan, didn't have enough money to get a place to live, so I, I just kind of moved into the building. I had keys because I uh, worked at the scene shop and the costume shop. That was one of my jobs. I just put a cot up there and a sleeping bag and slept up there where they stored all the old costumes up in the uh, up in the attic. You were a squatter. I was a squatter in the freeze building. Yeah, for about a year. Took a lot of acid, smoked a lot of dope, and thought I saw all kinds of mad ghosts up there. It was great. It was wonderful. I had long conversations every night. How did you go from that? Or once you graduated, how quickly did you move away from Michigan? And, and did you head to New York? No, I didn't go to New York right away. It was I graduated in 68, so I was still there was still a draft, and the war was still going on, and I didn't want to go, so I just kind of started to disappear. I went out to... I went to San Francisco first uh, to try to find a better quality of acid and drugs, and also because it was the summer of love. It was the summer before. The summer I got there wasn't the summer of love anymore to turn. But uh, I, I, I basically tried to disappear into the into the fabric of the United States so that I didn't have to go take this. So I didn't have to get the letter and go to selective service, take the physical, go to war. And uh, I lived out there and up and down the coast of California for, and also up all the way into Oregon. I worked at Timberline Lodge and, or on Mount Hood for a while and uh, just to get away from it. And finally, I, my parents tracked me down and, and uh, sent me the letter, so I had to go back to Newark New Jersey to get out of the draft and was so screwed up on drugs that they didn't want me. And then I went back to Michigan and uh, did a little graduate work and acted in some more plays, and then I got a a job at the uh, uh, Milwaukee Repertory Theater it was my first professional job. And I went to New York after a season there. So I didn't get to New York till I was 25, I think, 1971. Yeah. Yeah, I recently had Jack Shoulder on the show, and I see that you were in his first short, The Garden Party. Yeah, that was the first that was the first film I did. For the first couple of years, I didn't want to do any film or TV. I just said no to all that stuff. Just did theater. And then that came along, and it was from the Catherine Mansfield short story, which uh, I knew and liked. And Beatrice Strait was going to be in it, and it looked like a you know looked like a nice thing. It was up in Woodstock. We shot it, I think, in Woodstock, Vermont. And uh, uh, and it was so I did it. Yeah, great. I'm in love with Jessica Harper. It was a nice little short. I can't remember all the people in B Strait. Jessica Harper was in it, and some girl was young girl with red hair. I can't remember her name, but it was yeah, it was a good time. It was first that was the first film I did, and then the next film I did was uh, oh I did a, I came back and kept trying to do plays, and then I did uh, streamers in New York, and that's where I met Griffin and Amy actually. No, I didn't meet Amy. I met Griffin because uh, he was good friends with Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher was a big fan of streamers, and we did it in Lincoln Center, the original production, and Mike Nichols directed and. Uh, Carrie used to come to see it a lot, and she brought Griffin because he was they'd grown up together basically in Beverly Hills. And I met Griffin, became good friends with Griffin, and then Griffin introduced me to Amy because uh, uh, he'd met Amy and really liked her, had a big crush on her, but she wouldn't go out with him because he was too short. And so he he introduced her to me because I was short, and she went out with me. So the three of us hung out together. We had our kind of our Jules and Jim. Uh, I don't know whether it was summer or fall. I guess it was summer. Yeah. 
And then, uh, and we, and Amy read Chili's Teens of Winter, the book by Ann Beatty, and she said, uh, why don't we make this and make a good movie? And we, we were, Amy was probably serious about it. I think Griffin just wanted to hang out, and I just sort of wanted to, you know, hang out, and I didn't take it too seriously. And, uh, we, so we said, yeah, sure, let's make a movie. We didn't know anything about it. We didn't know what to do. So we tracked down Anne and, uh, in Boston. She was teaching in Boston. And three of us took a road trip up there and uh, to introduce ourselves to her and to ask her if we could get a, an option on the book so we could make a movie out of it. And she didn't know anything more about it than we did, really. But she liked us because, uh, oh, I don't know, because we were kind of like characters right out of her books. In a lot of ways, I French kissed her dog and asked for a drink, <laughs> and she poured, poured a shot—not uh, a shot, like a tumbler full of vodka, which I drank like a Russian would do. And uh, she's, Anne was just great. We made worked out a deal with, not in any kind of business way. It was really very funky, very informal, very just a handshake deal. She said she'd make it easy on us if we get an option. We so we were able to get an option for I think a couple of thousand dollars. And then we went back to New York and went to work trying to trying to make this thing into a movie without knowing what to do. But we had people to ask. We knew the right people to ask. The first guy we got in contact seriously with was a guy named Dave Golden. I don't know how we found Dave. Amy knew people because she'd made Mean Streets with Marty Scorsese, so she knew people around New York. I knew people because I had done... Julia and I was kind of a young actor in New York and people knew me so I knew some people and and Griffin was a kid who didn't know too many people except he had all these Hollywood connections knew people but none of us were business people we really were interested in uh, having a good time but Dave Golden really helped us he's an older guy he'd done every movie that was ever done in New York it seemed like all the good movies anyway and uh, he he helped us write a budget he helped us begin to think about it as an actual thing that could happen. And it uh, the book takes place in Washington, D.C., and Charles, the main character, works for the United States government. But we didn't we knew we could shoot in Washington, D.C. because to shoot in Washington in those days, now it's easier, but in those days you had to deal with Virginia, you had to deal with Maryland, and you had to deal with D.C., and uh, they didn't really know anything about movies and didn't really want to know anything about movies. So we decided to shoot it in Albany because it's, it's the capital of New York State. It's a great location physically, visibly. I mean, the whole, uh, I don't know if you've ever been up there, but the, uh, the capital that Nelson Rockefeller built looks like something that uh, just these big, giant buildings on a bluff over the river. They look like, uh, looks like a fortress. But it was a grand, it's an old city as an old part and a new part. It was really great. We went up there and uh, we knew that we had to, we knew enough about it from Dave mostly that we knew we had to talk to the Teamsters and before we talked to anybody. And uh, so we had a meeting with the Teamsters and the Teamsters basically told us that we had to put a driver and a swamper on every vehicle. And uh, we couldn't afford all that. And they also said, they told us a story about Ray Stark's producer who wanted to shoot the way we were up around there. And they said, we met him at the, uh, at the train station. We put him in a car. We put a gun to his head. We had the town, edge of town. We told him to walk home. The story was in those days, and it may or may not be true. I don't know, but we believed it was that, uh, in all the New York mob guys who were a little bit too crazy, who couldn't 
they couldn't manage in, in New York, they would send them to Troy and Schenectady to the mob up there. And there's some other, there's some good journalism that sort of backs this up because uh, there's murder cases up there that somebody wrote about extensively back in the, I think in the 80s. So we knew, we knew, we kind of knew what we were walking into, but we didn't. We were a bunch of, you know, a bunch of white kids from cities and we didn't know anything. But uh, yeah, so we changed our mind and decided to shoot it at Salt Lake because uh, we looked around, we did a lot of research, a lot of phone calls and the state of Utah, so we, it was getting late. We knew we needed snow. We wanted to shoot soon because we wanted to shoot the next year. We didn't know that it takes two or three or four years to get a movie made. We wanted to do it right now. Uh, we already had a deal by this time from uh, United Artists because we had, uh, what did we do? Oh, after I went away to the Animal House, Amy and Griffin and I met in California and we talked to uh, um, Claire Townsend, who's dead now, but uh, she was vice president of 20th Century Fox, but she was one of those, like, they used to hire girls out of uh, Princeton, Yale, Brown, all the really smart women, and uh, give them jobs reading scripts, basically, and reading books and looking for material, looking for new movies. Claire was that person at 20th Century Fox. Uh, uh, she had a cart that she carried books around. She didn't have an office or a desk or anything. And she had card business cards made that said from the chair of Claire, because that's all she had it was a chair and a cart. She wheeled scripts around it. Anyway, we, David Fields was there too. Oh, then she got, she left United Artists and went to 20th century. I went to, she went and left 20th century Fox, went to United Artists, David Fields, Stephen Bach were there. They were these three young guys who basically had been given a studio that uh, Arthur Krim, I don't know if Arthur Krim still had it or not, but uh, he was the New York guy. But uh, they had this studio, and, and they were a perfect match for us. We didn't figure that out. There's a long story about how we managed to get to Claire for a friend of mine, Julie Kirkham, who was also passed away just last year. Great, uh, a great script doctor and script teacher. We got to Claire Townsend, and uh, they liked us because, again, like Anne liked us, we were... We were like characters in a book. We were like characters in people's lives. We were, we were in people's lives. So they gave us a deal, and uh, that's when we went back to New York and tried to shape it up and see if we could actually make a movie. And we ended up going back out to Salt Lake City, as I said, because they made it a good deal. They promised us there would be snow as late as March uh, because we knew we weren't going to be able to get started shooting until February or March, and we needed snow, and they promised us snow. We, that made sense because they're in the mountains, and also we could shoot the exteriors in Salt Lake City. We could go to LA, back to LA, to exteriors, and uh, we shot it in Salt Lake City. Except there wasn't any snow, so we had to make snow. I had hired this great, great guy, Paul Helmick, who's also dead. Everybody's almost about dead, all now. But uh, Paul Helmick, who had been started out as a second AD for Howard Hawks. And Grant kept working for Hawks and working for other people, working for Hawks. And then he, he, by the time Hawks was making Hatari, he was his producer. And so he really knew the business. And I, I, I went out to L.A. Amy and Griffin stayed back in New York to work with Joan on the script. The story of the script is a big long, is a long story, too, how we got to Joan. Because originally, we were in L.A. trying to find a screenwriter, a, guy, a wonderful guy named Craig Bollett, who's a really good writer, another good script doctor doctor in, in L.A. He was a friend of Julie's. He got into it. He really understood it and really liked it. 
but he was nobody. And then Michael Weller, who I kind of knew from New York, became available. We read somewhere that he really liked the book, Chilly Scenes of Winter. So we went and found Michael Weller, who was writing and working with Neil Foreman on hair, on the, hair in, on the desert in Bakersfield. I, I managed to get a hold of Michael. We flew, we drove out to Bakersfield, I think it was Bakersfield, or maybe Barstow, to meet with Michael and meet with Milos. We talked to him a lot on the phone, talked to Michael on the phone, talked to him in person. Michael said he would write it if he could direct it. We didn't know how we could pull that off because he was a non-entity as a director. He's a known writer. He was from Moon Children in New York. He's a playwright. So he proposed or we proposed that Milos come on as executive director, and that would give us the credibility with the studio to get it made for them to give us a budget. We basically had a development deal by this time from United Artists and uh, to develop the script and a little bit of money, but not much. Just go make the script. So Milos, we met with Milos. We met with Michael. We had this great idea. Milos was going to executive produce. Michael was going to direct. Michael was going to write the script. We were going to produce. United Artists was going to make it. It was going to be, you know, it sounded beautiful. It all had happened relatively quickly. And Michael decided he didn't want to direct it yet. He had too many other projects. And we really wanted to do it because... We wanted to do it. We said we would do it. We wanted to do it. We didn't want to wait. We didn't have other stuff to do. And I don't know how we got. Oh, I don't know how we got to Joan Silver. I didn't know her personally. Amy might have known her. I knew John Hurd, who had been my best friend, who had worked with her. She was a writer-director. We always kind of knew we wanted to do a writer-director. We didn't want to go through that extra step of having a writer and having a director come in and rewrite. We wanted to have the same... It had, a, it had a, it's more of a unity if we had a writer-director and just the three of us. So there were only four people then involved in the manufacture of the script. And, and Anne as a writer, but she didn't want to have anything to do with writing it. But so we, so Joan was a writer-director. She'd done Between the Lines. She'd done Hester Street. Got a lot of notoriety. She was a woman. And just from a political point of view, it... Uh, Clayberg had done that that picture. Jill, uh, Joan had done Hester Street. It was there was talk then, as there is still talk, about the inequity of women directors and women writers, women roles for women. So we said yes to Joan. We talked to Joan. She said yes. We said yes. Amy and Griffin stayed back in New York to work with Joan on the script. I flew to L.A. That's how I got to Paul Helmick. I interviewed production managers. We knew from Dave Golden, who couldn't, wouldn't and couldn't come to L.A. to work with us, that the first job was a production manager to help us shape it up, to help us figure out how to make a movie. And Paul had been with Hawks, and Hawks was one of the greatest American directors of all time. He and I got along great, and he was an old guy, and uh, knew everybody, knew the business, and, and very approachable. And uh, we, he and I sort of put the production side of it together out there, did a trip to Salt Lake to scout locations. Amy and Griffin came west and uh, having worked, with, I guess I went back. We worked on this. We worked on the script. Joan was very great to work with on the script because she was very open. We'd have meetings in the morning and she'd go home and write all afternoon and write at night and send, and we we didn't have email, so she couldn't send us pages, but she'd give us pages the next morning, we'd read them, we'd talk about it more, 
It was a very it was a very fluid arrangement. She was very open. She wasn't a writer who just wanted to go off in the corner and write and then come back and say, this is what I did. But she was great to work with in that way. It happened very quick. It really happened quickly. Because, I mean, lots of times I've been working on a movie, executive producing a movie for, I think, two years. And we're still tr- trying to f- the cast so that we get the right cast, we can get the right money. And, uh, and we did it. I see Samuel House in November of 77. That's when we really started to talk seriously about it. And we were shooting it in 79, by, by winter of 79. I think. No, maybe we were, I can't remember when we shot it. Maybe we shot it. No, we shot it very, very quickly. And then we had to go back to New York and uh, the script and the script approval. And then we had to cast it. We always knew, we always knew we wanted John Hurd to do it because I knew John because he was my good friend. He was an up-and-coming actor. He had a certain amount of credibility. He'd done Between the Lines. I don't know if he'd done that uh, Paul Schrader movie, Cat People, yet or not, but he was definitely an up-and-coming actor in New York, and people in movies were interested in him. He was beautiful. He was a great actor. He was a friend. He was a drunk. He, uh, you know, he had every. He was just. He was perfect for for uh, Charles. And Amy knew him as an actor, and Griffin met him, and we liked him. So we went after him, and I, he and I talked a lot because he didn't want to do it. He also wanted to play hard to get, and uh, it took a long time to convince him to do it. And we finally convinced him to do it, and he said he would. And then the United States came to us and said, "Listen, you can make this movie. We'll, we had a budget for two and a million dollars. They said you will double your budget, so you have five million dollars, but you have to put either John Ritter, who is big deal, right?" Robin Williams, who had just come off of something big, right? I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was Vietnam or what it was. Uh, and, or who was, oh, Treat Williams. Treat Williams, who had been in Hair for Milos and, and Michael. So these three guys who already had movies who were commodities that the United States thought could do something, mm-hmm. but all of which were, each of which was wrong, as good as they are, they were wrong for the part Charles. Uh, as we saw it, and we'd been the ones that had found the book, and we knew it, and we all agreed they were wrong. So we had to, we had to sort of tighten our belts and go into United Artists and say, "No, we want John Hurd. That's all we want. And if you don't, if we don't, if you won't give us the money for it, we'll go somewhere else. We know we can get the money." Big bluff. We didn't know where, where else to go. There probably wasn't anywhere else to go. But they. Claire, luckily, and David Fields were on our side, and they backed us up, and they let us use the cast. They let us cast it the way we wanted. So we got we got to make it the way people make independent films nowadays. Only we got to make it through a studio. So we had that source of money. We didn't have to go to banks and say, "Give me money to make a movie." No bank would have trusted three schmuck actors who wanted to make a movie from a book that. You know that hadn't even been on the bestseller list. It was just a good book with a cast of virtual unknowns. There was a point in time when we were trying to cast it. I knew we all knew we wanted John. We knew we wanted John. That was we locked it around. But we, I knew Merrill because I'd done a movie with Merrill. And Merrill, the first movie I ever acted in was uh, Julia. That I, I got because I'd been in this play. And so Merrill and I had traveled to England together. We knew each other, and I gave her the book to, to Meryl, and gave her the script, and she really liked it. She really wanted to do it, but she didn't want to do it with John. She wanted to do it with Sam Waterston, 
And again, we had to make a decision. And, and Merrill, we had gotten to see a screening of Deer Hunter. I knew Merrill, and everybody knew Merrill in those days. She hadn't done anything yet. Deer Hunter wasn't even out. She'd done Julia. Julia, her part in Julia had been cut down almost nothing. My part had been cut completely out. But it was very little. But people knew who Meryl Streep was. Done. I guess she might have done the cherry orchard in New York already. But anyway, so she was great, and she's Meryl. She was. She's still Meryl, and she was Meryl then. She's a brilliant actress and a phenomenal woman and a great human being. And but we had to say no to her because we knew we wanted John. And uh, Sam was wrong, and I know what she was thinking. I know why she wouldn't want, didn't want to do it with John because she was. Uh, pretty volatile and a little untrustworthy in some way. She and Meryl's a very solid person, and John's a little. In those days, especially, was a little. He could be kind of hard to find in the ether. He traveled in the ether quickly, and uh, and Sam was more trustworthy. And it would have been a very different movie, and it wouldn't have been the movie we wanted to make. It would have been interesting. <laughs> Sometimes I think about it. I think I would like to have seen. Marla and Sam in that movie. I don't know why she wanted to do it because it's, uh, what's her name? I can't remember her name right now. Laura. Laura isn't, uh, isn't the main part. Charles is the main part, but somehow Meryl saw it as a, as a part that she could play. She ended up playing parts of it in Kramer versus Kramer a little while later. A divorced woman going, a woman going, not going through a divorce, but going through a separation with a child not knowing where she was, what she was doing. I mean, the part in Kramer versus Kramer is more, is better for her. But would it, I think she was thinking the same, along the same lines when she wanted to do Laura. That's what I think. You'll have to ask, ask Meryl what she was thinking. So that, so that was another little wrinkle. And then, oh, yeah. So we cast it ourselves. You probably know that because we didn't, couldn't really afford a casting director. We didn't really know one. And we all were actors. We knew all the actors. We knew people we wanted. So we cast it. The rest of it, we cast it. Once we had John, and then we got Mary Beth in New York, too. Because uh, John had known Mary Beth. We all knew Mary Beth. She's a wonderful actress. She wasn't what Holly thinks of as a great beauty, but she's a wonderful actress and, and uh, perfect for Laura in lots of ways. And we cast the rest of it out there, and we wanted to be sure. Well, we part of the idea was that we'd all play small parts in it, and Griffin plays the boyfriend of Charles's sister or something like that. I can't remember, but he has a great line that he improvised, we better skedaddle, which is a very funny line. And Joan wanted me to play Ox, Laura's husband, because I'm kind of big and dumb. And Amy played a part that had to get cut out, which was too bad. But uh, I can't remember what she played a secretary or somebody that Charles has an encounter with. Yeah, and so uh, we casted ourselves mostly out of New York. The biggest question in casting became who was going to play. And I'm blanking again. Charles's best friend that Peter Rieger played. What's his name? Sam. Sam. That's right. Who was going to play? Sam? A couple of good actors came in and read for it. And Peter. I'd worked with Peter in Animal House, so we knew each other. I think John might have known Peter from New York. And uh, Peter came in and just was dead on. And a little lower key than some of the other guys. There was one guy that I always thought we might have been a more interesting Sam, but Peter was just, was great. He was really, he really grounded Charles in a lot of ways. So that was the, that was the cast. Oh, and then uh, Amy came in one morning, and she and Griffin had died, who were living together by this time, 
were uh, had watched uh, Gloria Graham in in a lonely place, right? Exactly, and watched that and thought she was great. So we tried to track her down, and somehow we tracked her down. I think she was in England or something, or living in England, or had been living in England doing plays. And we got her to come back to the States on her own dime. She was coming back anyway, probably, and come to L.A. and act in for us. And she was great. And then uh, I had done streamers on New York with a great actor, a wonderful actor named Ken Millen, who's also dead now. Uh, he'd done streamers. He'd played uh, Rooney and streamers, one of the old sergeants and streamers. So he was a friend of mine. So we asked him to come in and read. And he was great for the head uh, for Charles's stepdad. And, uh, so that was a great matchup. We, I, we just got, we got really lucky in casting without having a casting agent. And which was nice because we just, people we knew and people, and we just, we just made fun. We just, we were stupid. We just picked up the phone. I mean, we, we, we I, my friend, Julie Kirkham gave me Claire Townsend's phone number, 20th century Fox. And we just picked up the phone and said, can we talk to Claire Townsend, please? She picked up the phone and uh, we said, hey, we've got this book, Chili Scenes of Winter. Oh, I know that book. Can We got an idea for a movie. Can we come in and talk to you? And we went in and talked to him. We, we just, you know, if we'd known the no meant no, we probably would have gone back to acting, all three of us. But we didn't know that no meant no. <laughs> no meant maybe. And, uh, and we also just were not afraid to call, pick up the phone and call somebody. So... I don't know. I always have thought that it was the fact that we didn't know anything about it that got us, that got it made as quickly as it did. And, uh, you know, for whatever it is, I mean, it's far from being a great movie, although it was very pleasant to have. uh, We did a screening out and one came back because it went, it was, oh, that's the title. Did, Did anybody tell you the title, Circus? He mentioned a little bit about it, but I'd love to hear yours. Yeah, yeah, mine will, mine will be more dirty and more detailed. Amy's always, Amy's very polite. No, uh, it was, uh, the book was called Chilly Scenes of Winter, as the movie is known now. And United Artists hated that title. Of course, they hated, they didn't, they would have made George Lucas change the title of Star Wars. Um, because the people, the distribution people would take over once you've got the movie made. And we had made the movie. We had it all made. It was all ready. And uh, they said, you have to change the title. So we we knew we didn't want to change the title. We, t- we tossed them some bad, bad titles. The idea, I had to help John Landis edit Animal I had helped him edit Animal House, but I'd sat in while he was making editing Animal House because I'd already done it. We were in L.A. trying to get this movie together. I thought this will help me learn about movies. So I sat in talked to John about editing and one of the things he said was that he always tried to do was present the rough cut, the first cut that the guys in suits in the, t- in the tower look at, always put some obvious mistakes in there, some obvious, and they'll focus on those and they'll let the other stuff that you know them maybe, maybe not going to like, they'll let that slide because they'll say, okay, here you know, it's, we don't like this, we don't like that, we don't like that. And if two out of those three or four or five things they don't like, you don't like either, you just left them in there because you know they won't like them, then you cut those and you make a deal with them. That's how you do it. So we gave, we gave United Artists a bunch of titles that we really hated and thought they would probably hate, knew they would probably hate, and we looked at the thesaurus and one of the, one of the titles we came up with, we wanted to call it Laura because of Laura, because she's the, the obsession. 
but we couldn't do that because somebody, because of the movie Laura with uh, Gene Tierney, I think. Uh, we couldn't call it that because they owned that title and they wouldn't give it up. I can't remember some of the other titles we typed, but one of the, we went to the thesaurus and Head Over Heels sounded just like the stupidest title we could have come up with. So we presented that to United Artists and they loved it. And they took it and they made it, changed, turned it into Head Over Heels and uh, made this stupid ad campaign with Charles with not even the right kind of glasses on with windshield wipers on his glasses and snow. And it was just, I mean, it was a, a dumb romantic comedy the way they treated it because they didn't get it, but they should, they spend most of their life on a golf course. So I'm not surprised they didn't get it or in bars over martinis talking to each other about how cool they are. They wouldn't get something that was about failure. Donald Trump doesn't get things that are about failure. either. And America is about this. Um, but anyway, so so they took it in the head over heels, and so we were stuck with head over heels, and we had to do it. It's head over heels. It opened. They, they gave it a nice opening, and you know, we had a, a screening for everybody, and Peter Riegert, and, uh, and then nobody came to see it because they didn't really advertise it, and the critics weren't crazy about it. They gave it, I don't know how, they said, we'll put it in the theaters for a couple of weeks, and then if it doesn't do anything, gone. And so Peter, who had been an old political, he'd worked for Beth Abzug, he had good political activist background, and he knew about getting out on the street and handing out flyers, and sort of Amy Griffin and I and Peter and anybody else we could get our hands on would stand out on the street. We'd print up flyers on our own. We stood out on the street handing out flyers, go see this movie, Chili Scenes of Winter. We did the, well, we did grassroots kind of advertising for it, and people came, and it, I don't know how long it lasted. They kept it, but they kept it a couple extra weeks because of the uh, our camp, our street level campaign, and then they folded. And once it's folded, it's done. And while I'm thinking about it, I'll tell you a story. I was in L.A. once while we were trying to just before it opened, and I was in the office of the not the head of distribution, but one of the people who handled distributions and handled uh, mostly screenings of it because we were screening it for for press and screening for industry people trying to get some word of mouth. And I'm sitting, this is how the studios work. I was sitting in his office talking to him and a guy sticks his head in who I didn't know, but he uh, said, I've got these 60 screenings of Black Stallion. Where do you want me to put them? Black Stallion was a movie that uh, Francis Coppola produced, Caleb Deschanel directed. It's a really beautiful looking movie and a good story. Mickey Rooney's in it even, I think. And, uh, we knew about it. We knew it had been made. We knew there were, you know, Coppola was behind it. They were trying, but it was all way, way over budget. We knew that. So we'd come in under budget and under, like two days and under budget by $250,000 or something like that. Maybe not $100,000 under budget because we really scrimped and saved and we did everything right. We did everything the way you're supposed to do it. We weren't extravagant. We didn't have a $19,000 item for snow tires or anything like that, like they had on Raging Bull, which was all for cocaine. Without missing a beat, when this guy sticks his head in and says, I've got these 60 screenings for uh, Black Stallion, where do you want me to put them? And I knew right away what that meant, because you pay the projectionist, you pay the studio for the projection room and in the theater that you're screening it in. There's a cost to that. I don't know what the cost is, but I knew there was a cost to that. And without missing a beat, the guy whose office I'm in says, "Put it on chilly scenes of winter." Completely blanking out the fact that I was 
the Billy Sins of Winter, and I was one of the producers of Billy Sins of Winter, and I was sitting in his office, and I looked at him like, what? And he looked at me and said, and then he turned back to the guy and said, I'll get back to you later. And and he explained. So that, I mean, what he was going to do was take this overage, this black side and already over budget, another couple of thousand dollars, maybe as much as 60 screenings, maybe as much as $6,000 or $60,000. I don't know. He was going to put that in our budget. We were over budget. We had room. I mean, we were under budget. We had room for it. And so it's just that, just one of those, one of the reasons that I stopped wanting to be a producer and went back to just being an actor after, uh, afterwards was, uh, just knowing that, yeah, I got sick. I got mononucleosis. I'm not built for producing. Amy's built for it. She's got an iron constitution. I'm weak and flabby and I get, uh, I get sick easy and I get upset. So I was not built for it. Amy went on and Griffin went on and they did a good job. I, uh, I retired and went back to acting after, well, I worked with them on uh, Baby It's You, the next, the next picture that the two of them did. We were triple play because we'd gone to, uh, uh, when we were just getting this idea together, Amy was a huge Red Sox fan. And I'm a National League fan, a Cardinal fan, but uh, I like the Red Sox. So we'd go out to Yankee games and sit in the bleachers and uh, watch the Yankees play the Red Sox. And uh, we were big baseball fans, so we called ourselves Triple Play, the three of us. And Triple Play is a great, very rare play in baseball. Uh, three outs on one hit. And, uh, and we were Triple Play. And then after, when I re- retired, after Baby of Two, I helped get the script done and helped get the deal made, but just sort of tangentially, I, my head wasn't in it. My heart certainly wasn't in it. And uh, I'd already gone back and done a couple of plays and really realized that I really liked acting. And uh, and so I dropped out and they produced uh, uh, Baby of Two. I acted in it, but my parts cut out. John Sales directed it, wrote it and directed it. Again, we wanted, they wanted to, we all wanted to work with a writer-director. It just cuts out that, that funny step because directors really are writers in some way of good directors. We believe the Andrew Saris auteur notion of and the Cahiers de Cinema auteur notion of film directing. Can you tell me about the re-release of the film? I can't remember. It's 79, it came out. I'm pretty sure it came out in 79. So after it failed, it's head over heels. United Artists Classics had started up right around there. And Ira whose name I can't remember. Yeah, I think Ira Deutsch's name uh, it's, was heading this United Artists Classics Division, which wanted to do foreign movies, distribute foreign movies, low-budget independent American movies, because this independent movie movement was was starting then. I mean, it, it's always been since way back from that, that wacky Western that that guy... I don't know. They just showed it a couple of years ago at uh, South by Southwest. I can't remember the name of it. But you know, the independent film movement was was really beginning to be a movement. Sundance, I don't think, existed yet, except as a ski area, or maybe it did by this time. As but it wasn't what it is now, which isn't has barely barely anything to do with independent movies anymore. Little budget independent. Anyway, they wanted to do those kind of movies and. We went to them, or they came to us. I'm not quite sure what the connect, how the connection was made, and they liked, they had liked the movie Chili Seems of Winter because it was a, it was a good movie. I mean, it lacks a certain dynamic, but it's a good movie. It's a thoughtful, thoughtful movie, and it's a movie about 
you know, like I said, it's a movie about failure. It's a movie about uh, uh, living with failure, living with your life. And uh, it's a movie about people we know. Anyway, they liked it, and then so we we had to change the name back to Chili Scenes of Winter, which felt so good because it was such a dumb thing for it to be called Head Over Heels. And it didn't ruin the movie's chances, but it certainly didn't help the movie's chances. And so we, they saw it. They saw the movie the way we saw it, and they put it into that great theater up in the Upper West Side, and it ran for quite a while and was quite successful. And at some point it ran in theaters out in uh, L.A. I remember going out there, and I, I think this might, I don't know when the, whether this was 1981 or 1980 or when it was. I don't know how long it took before it came out as Chili Scenes of Winter. You probably have it. Do you know? Amy said that it was probably just a year, year and a half. Yeah, probably was. If it came out and said, I think it probably opened in fall of 79. So it probably was uh, late 80 or early 81. It always felt like whenever I'd go to the theater. And we'd go to the theater when it was over on the east side, when it was head over heels, we'd stand in the back and listen to the crowd laughing and feel good about it. And then we'd, when it was Chili Scenes of Winter, it was so much more much more fun to go in to see Chili Scenes of Winter than it was to see Head Over Heels. But it ran for a long time. Some some critic in L.A., and I can't remember his name, put it on his 10 best list of the decade in the, in the, in the 70s. So he was probably talking about Head Over Heels, but he saw it and liked it as Head Over Heels for the 70s. And we got it. We snuck in at the end of the decade, and he must have had a list that he couldn't fill out. He put it, you know on his list of 10 best of the decade. I don't know who it was. I think Critic was not working anymore, but uh, still, somebody somebody liked it. But, uh, yeah, so, and, and I think it was, I regret, and then there was this great guy who wore a horrible wig, and he's still around. He's really a good, smart film and good, global, you know, independent film guy. He doesn't, you know, ignores Hollywood. I doesn't ignore him. He has to work with him, but... Um, Jeff something who uh, has a place and uh, no hair, but he wore this goofy wig and uh, he was a big champion of it and really helped it. He was a good guy. So, and it, yeah, we got it back out and it, it felt, it, it really felt as though it completed something that we'd wanted to start when it came out as Chili Scenes of Winter, whether it was late 80 or early 1981, whenever it was, it had been since 77, 1977. So it had been, by the time it completed its cycle, it had been what it takes for a normal movie to get made, like five or six years. Uh, we'd all done other things in the meantime. and uh, But it, it, it really felt completed. Nice. It was good. And the New York Magazine, there's an article you should look up. I think New York Magazine did an article uh, on the three of us because we were a bit of a story because it was three actors who didn't know anything who had made this movie. And, uh, I can't remember who did the article or when it was done, but it was a nice little article. It's a life. I think didn't last year. It played at, uh, IFI played it for a screening and I, I couldn't, I was doing a play out here in Montana, but Joan was there. And I think Mary Beth went and Griffin, I don't know if he came, Amy went, but they all talked on stage and now you're doing this. So it has a bit of a life. I mean, it, I don't. I don't think it's a cult classic, but it's, but it's still a nice movie. It's so much that it has a life all this time later. There's some bad stuff. Oh, you and I, uh, MG, we did our, you know, the spot in. Uh, I think it's at the A-frame when I'm selling A-frames, and Charles and Sam come to uh, see the A-frame. There's a, a 
couple of shots where it just goes all grainy because uh, MGM who did our who did the uh, printed the thing they did our development they developed it was all on film digital like now they do now 35 millimeter they should they they developed it for us and they keep the negative in a safe place supposedly and you and the editor works with the work print. And uh, they print into a print, and the editor cuts for the work print, cut it on a moviola. Uh, Roy Scheider's ex-wife, uh, Cynthia Scheider, edited it for us and, uh, on a moviola. She could have used an advent, but uh, she used a moviola. It was really good old-fashioned movie-making. It was fun. Where you touch the film, it's in their hands. And uh, MGM, somebody, I can't, there was a television series called, based on the movie Silver Street, I think is what it was. Somebody, whoever the producer of that was, said, destroy the negative on that. We're never, I never want to see it again. We're never going back to it. So, and they grabbed a bunch of cans off the shelf in the little temperature-controlled room where they keep the negatives to last as long as it can. But unfortunately, they grabbed, they grabbed a can of Chili's the Winter's Negative and shredded it, burned it. I mean, they, they don't actually just destroy it. They save it because the silver nitrate in it is still valuable. But they just, they destroy it. And so we lost a whole, a reel of film, just one reel, which luckily only had, you know, I think two or three cuts in it that we were using. But what you're left with is then you have to shoot off of a work print, which has already been dragged across the floor, hung on the wall, run through a moviola. You have to shoot off the work print and make another negative. And so it loses a couple of generations really quickly. And if you look in that scene in the A-frame, there are two or three shots. We re-edited that scene so we use as little of it as we could, but we had to use two or three shots. And there's two or three shots that did just go, the whole quality of it just goes all grainy and, uh, and not good. And it really sort of drops you out of the film. But, uh, what was his name? Butler, who shot it. Great guy. Nice guy. They're all great guys when you, when you do a movie with them. Everybody's a great guy. But he really was a nice guy, and he knew a lot. We hired a good good cinematographer, and he made it look really good. Not not outrageously good, not Vilma Sigmund, but it was good. And then to have these sort of two almost black and white looking uh, shots in it, it just drops you out of it. So that's, you know, that was too bad. But, you know, you live with it. We did the best we could. Again, failure is a theme. <laughs> a lot of really sincere, and I mean sincerely wonderful people between the beginning, from Julie Kirkham, Craig Bolleton, right on down the line, that uh, that helped us get, helped us get it made and and supported us. And Claire Townsend, uh, David Field was there. He was good, but Claire was really the mother. She really put her put her job on the line to get it done. Which was great, and then the people that worked with us, Dave Golden, Paul Helmick. I'm really glad to hear that Kenneth McMillan was um, as nice as he was, and just that you guys had worked together. He was always such a treat to see in movies. Yeah, I love Ken. He was really great, and I did streamers with him in New York because I in Dolph. They were like the backbone. with four young kids, two two black guys there, who started. Dorian Harewood started it, and. Uh, Peter Fitzgerald now too, and and me and uh, and they were always they were the old guys they were the drunks they were the alcoholics they were but they were the backbone of that play and I Ken really was a good good friend for a long time and he loved John Hurd he really loved John because he had John had done Dreamers originally in New Haven 
and been fired when Mike Nichols brought down to New York because, I don't know, they didn't get along. And, uh, and I always miss John. So it was great for Ken and John to be together. And we, it was part of what we wanted to do. And when, when you cast a play, you cast for chemistry. You, and people do it for movies, too. And you just want to cast people that are going to get along, that relate to each other the way the characters relate to each other. And uh, and we, yeah, I mean, Gloria was a mad woman, a great, incredibly beautiful mad woman. And uh, I can't remember her name, but Charles's mom is still you know, it's, it's a mad woman, a piece of work that he has to handle in the movie. And uh, it sounds great. Yeah, Kenneth was good. I'm glad you like him. I, it probably... You know, you get old, you die, and uh, people forget your work, but it's good when people do. I loved him in uh, Ragtime and, uh, of course, yeah. Dune, and pretty much every role I've ever seen him in. He was terrific. Yeah, he was always, always good. And Dolph Sweet as well. I'm talking about Dreamers now, but, yeah, he was always really good. And, and he could sing and dance, too. I wanted to ask you about a couple of your other roles, but I feel kind of bad because you've given me almost an hour of your time. That's all right. I don't know what time it is. That's okay. I've got I've got a little time. I've got to go down and rehearse this play in a, in a while. But I yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I'm sure you want to know. But go ahead. Ask. I wanted to know what your experience was like on Animal House. How that was uh, being able to channel your inner asshole as much as you were able to. <laughs> asshole? I never. I don't understand that. Everybody thinks he's the bad guy. I think he's just greatly misunderstood. He was the law and order Republican, the Nixon Republican. Um, it was, uh, it was, that's my father. That's my father. I had my father to work with and lots of guys I known. And as I find out and I'm told by my son, <laughs> that's actually probably me. I just don't like to, I'm probably, I am really that asshole, that strict, stern asshole. But it was a great, it was a great show to work on. There's so many stories on Animal House. I'd take another hour. I won't say that, but it was great because again, uh, as we as I said about Animal House, I wrote Chili Scenes of Winter, the casting on Animal House was just brilliant because there were no movie stars, no people with big egos. John was a known quantity because of Saturday Night Live, but he was only, it only I think it was one season Saturday Night Live had been on and was a huge hit, but maybe it was two seasons, I think, I didn't remember. But uh, no, I think we were in the middle of the second season, 77, because I think it started in 76. You know, John was enough quantity, but he was really busy. He'd fly back every Thursday to do, to do Saturday Night Live and come back to us on Sunday. So he was focused and working hard. Everybody else was an actor, not a movie star or anything like that. So, so we played together really well. And John was brilliant. And the script, Doug Kenny did a phenomenal job of conceiving of the script and Chris Miller uh, all his stories from Dartmouth, uh, the, the actual fraternity in Dartmouth came into play. And it was just one of those moments everything worked right. And now 39 years later, I just, I'm on the board of directors of uh, Montana Natural History Center here in Missoula. And we did our auction to raise money, a fundraising auction on Friday. And one of the items that we auction off as a live auction is an animal house party where I'll come to your house show the movie and uh, tell stories and and uh, answer questions and talk about the movie. And, and we, we provide some food. We get a local vendor. Anyway, it was the highest. We auctioned it off twice, actually, and it's uh, that was the highest item 
it, it sold for more money than any other item did. So 30, almost 39 years later, it's still interesting and, and a movie that people really like and it connects to their life. So it's, you know, those kinds of moments aren't the responsibility of personal. Lots and lots of people like to claim responsibility for Animal House, but it's really a bunch of people coming together at the right time, right place, and being in the right frame of mind when they're in it. You know, two years later, John wouldn't have been able to make to do the job he did in that. He was able to do it then because he was working hard from back and forth. He was focused. He was concentrated. He had experience making a movie because he'd made going south with Nicholson, which was a good school. I mean, it's a good anytime you do anything with Jack Nicholson. If you pay attention, it's a good way to go to school about making movies. If you do a movie with Jack Nicholson, because you know he's done all the jobs from grip to gaffer to to still photographer, and he's still at it and he's still alive, which is a really amazing thing. It was. Right time, right place. Everything was right, and we were. And John Landis was smart enough to get us away from the guys in, to- in the suits and tower, up to Eugene, Oregon, to make it there, so that they couldn't come and bother us. And uh, it was all together. It was all together good, and it was a great experience. And it was 1977, before everybody was afraid of sex and afraid of drugs, afraid of so many things that they're afraid of now and uh, became afraid of later as people started to die and AIDS came along. Uh, so it was a lot of fun. <laughs> we were on the campus, a lot of co-eds. It was a lot of fun. That's what can I say? Probably fun, you know, that I should be ashamed of, but I'm not. Uh, how did you then connect with Twisted Sister to be in a couple of their music videos a few years later? They really liked Animal House, and they really liked the character Niedermeyer. In fact, they used uh, D would use a lot of his Niedermeyer's lines in the act when they were just a bar band up and down the Hudson and all through Long Island. And when they when Atlantic discovered them, well, they they'd been around for quite a while. But when Atlantic said we want to make a music video in the early days of MTV, eighty four probably I think I made the first one. Uh, I didn't. I didn't have a television, and uh, had no idea what MTV was, and certainly didn't know anything about. I mean, I was a blues and jazz man. I didn't know anything about uh, hair bands or heavy metal, rock and roll, or any of that stuff. I knew who Gene Simmons was because I used to sometimes sit at a table at the Cafe Central, but uh, uh, it didn't know what Kiss was. So anyway, uh, they called me at home, and somehow they got my number. And they called me at home, didn't go through my agent, didn't go anything. They got me, called me at home, and said, "Can you come to California to make this music video?" And I said, "Well, uh, when do you want me to come? I'm doing a play." And they said, "Well, whenever you can." And I said, "Well, I, I do the play Wednesday through Sunday, so I could fly out Sunday night after the matinee because we do a matinee, no evening show Sunday." play called Mr. and Mrs. was Polly Draper written by Kevin Wade, I think. And uh, I could fly out Sunday and if they wanted to do it in L.A., I could fly out Sunday, but I have to be back here by Tuesday night. Or, no, or at least Wednesday. I've got to be back Wednesday morning sometimes so I could take the red eye out Tuesday. Pay me money, pay me American money. I had a girlfriend out there that I'd left some stuff in her apartment. I wanted to pick that up. And it was a trip to L.A., a chance to get out of New York. So I said, yeah, and why not? I got off the plane, and this big, ugly hair guy with blonde hair, the ugliest guy I'd ever seen in my life, Dee Snyder, met me. And he was a very nice guy. I say that and with all affection. 
that he's an ugly guy. He met me at the plane, and he was so excited. He was like a big puppy dog. He was so excited to meet meet Niedermeyer because he loved Niedermeyer, loved the movie. You know, by this time, Animal House was four four or five years behind me, and I was on. I'd done. I'd already made chilly scenes. I'd done a lot of plays. You know, I was. I just moved on. But anyway, it was nice to sort of see this guy so excited and we get in the car and he's driving me back in the car and they didn't have any place to put me up so I slept on Marty Conner who was the director who directs a lot of HBO music specials in those days and I, I don't know if he's dead now huh? I slept on his couch as we're driving in he sort of tells me what this thing is like it's like a Roadrunner cartoon and you're Wiley Coyote and the band is the Roadrunner and there's lots of falls and we got the stuff all worked out and it's going to be a lot of fun but we want to open it with you yelling at your son and you've got to write the speech so I went home I went home. I went I went to Marty Colner's I've dumped my stuff off and I called a friend uh, Rex Weiner who was uh, I don't know if they were married yet. he was living with Edgardo it was a good 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 friend of mine from the old days She'd been an editor or a PA on Apocalypse Now and edited a lot of things, now Rex. I went and saw them for dinner and told Rex about this. And he he had created, Rex is a writer, he created the character Ford Fairlane, uh, who I don't know if you know, but he uh, there was a movie that Andrew Dice Clay made called Ford, uh, called Ford Fairlane, I think. Yeah, we actually had Rex on the show for a Ford Fairlane episode. Yeah, Rex is great. I love Rex. Yeah, I have a good history with Rex. So Rex and I sat down and uh, and hand wrote out this, you know, one minute, two minute, I don't know how long it is, this ramp that he goes in. And he had said, all you got to do is make sure that the final line is, what do you want to do with your life? And we want to, you know, paraphrase Animal House as much as you want, da-da-da-da, do all this. So we, you know, Rex came up with the line, I carry that in 16 in a war, and you carry that, that, that electric twanger. And we just wrote this thing out, and I memorized it, and I did it the next day. Not just full, full bore volume turned up to ninety nine, and uh, full bore rage and uh, spit coming out of my mouth. And we uh, shot the whole thing, and then shot all the, the stunts. And they had, a, I think, they had a couple of stuntmen to do the hard stuff, but I didn't a lot of it. And guys, uh, I was back on the plane, met a, picked up my stuff from my old girlfriend, met a new girl. And uh, uh, got on the plane and was back and did the play next to, and never thought another thing about it. And then it starts to play every five minutes on MTV, and suddenly people are I'm walking down the street and people are looking at me and saying, "What do you want to do with your life? Want me to stay at home on the street? They want me to. They're not happy if I don't spit on them." So we do it. Yeah. Yeah, it went. It sort of went well, you know. It, you know what it became. It became this great, you know, it's one of the top videos of all time. According to some people, apparently Tipper Gore played it. My father hated the fact that I was an actor. I mean, he thought it was really a waste of a, of a brain and a life. And uh, but the one thing he was proud of is somebody told him that Tipper Gore, when she did her hearings on sex and drugs and rock and roll, sex and violence and rock and roll, um, uh, that they played We're Not Gonna Take It in its entirety on the floor of the Senate. My dad never saw it, because I don't think he would have liked it if he'd seen it. 
but he was very proud of the fact that his son's work was in the Senate record book. So, so he was, and then you know, and then I got letters after it came out it was so big, and everybody saw it. I mean, more people probably have seen Twisted Sister videos than have seen even Animal House, maybe certainly than seen that saw more seen that than saw my Romeo and Juliet with Kate Burton, Riverside Park, sure, but. uh I got letters from the union because it was outside the union. I didn't bother with the union. I didn't care. They they gave scale, SAG scale. I knew what that was. I mean, it's like three hundred bucks a day for two days. Uh, they, those guys all, you know, live in houses on Long Island with indoor swimming pools, and I was still living in a fifth floor walk up in New York. But that was I didn't care really. It was a panic that they they made a lot of money and uh, and. Uh, I had done all the work on it. But anyway, so I got letters from the Screen Actors Guild saying, you did, you worked outside the union. We don't permit that. If you do it again, we will have to bring uh, charges against you. Uh, by that time, I had already made the second one, but it wasn't out yet. So I just tossed that letter in the circular file. And I also got letters from Universal that said, you can't do that. You can't use that character. We'll sue you. We own the character, Niedermeyer. You don't. You can't paraphrase it, and I'd already done it again so, with Stephen Stephen first on the second one. So uh, that was all behind me, and they never did anything about it. So well, then you played Niedermeyer again, kind of in the Stupids, right? In the Stupids, yeah. We uh, John had already cast it with Hector Elizondo. Cast that part. Uh, Hector got sick, I think, and couldn't do it. So John called me and asked me if I'd come do it, and I said, Yeah, sure. Okay. My career was over. I had a baby by then. I'd sort of been out of the loop, not auditioning, not doing anything. I was taking care of my kid, living up in Oxnard, and was, you know, not really working that much. And John asked me, can I do this? And I thought, yeah, it's a bunch of money and a uh, chance to go to Toronto, where I'd been before. I'd worked before, and I'd like to city and uh, to do this part. And uh, we, as we sort of talked it over, read the script, talked about it, we said, you know, this guy is so much like Niedermeyer. And John said, yeah, I know. I think he'll just take it that direction. And we even, he's called the colonel in the script and in the movie, but his, uh, we went ahead and put his, it got a name tag that said Niedermeyer, because in the military, you wear, over your left chest, uh, left breast, you wear uh, a name tag with your last name. And we called it a Niedermeyer. And uh, no, we didn't we didn't focus on it. We didn't call attention to it. But it's there, and you can see it in the movie. And so Universal didn't say anything about it then. New Line released the movie. But yeah, so we had a lot of fun doing it that way. Yeah. And then John put a Niedermeyer in uh, the Twilight Zone movie that he made that he got in so much trouble with when the helicopter went down and killed Vic Morrow and the two yes, the Vietnamese kids. Um, but there's a lot, there's a shot in that, I think, from above. There's a bunch of soldiers going through the jungle in Vietnam, and one of them says, and you don't see who says it, it's just over, we should never have killed Niedermeyer, something like that. So, so Don brought it back there, too. He liked the character. He's always liked the character. What was your experience like on Seinfeld as the maestro? Uh, well, to go again, uh, you know, actors get to be really good actors when they have really good writers, and uh, that writing in that show so great and the and the chemistry between the four of them Michael and, and Jerry and Elaine and uh, uh, or not Elaine Julia and uh, Jason is so good and by that time I think it was the sixth or seventh season they had their routine down pat it was so very slick 
very friendly, very easy, easy space to work in, and it was a great character. And the, you know, the writers all came up to me and said, "Boy, this is one of the best characters we've ever written." So I have, I have very little to do. I just had to sort of show up and say the lines and not bump into the furniture, as uh, as I think uh, Robert Duvall once said about acting. And that was, and the work was done because the writers did it, and they had, you know, they had such a good environment that it was easy to play into, and. Uh, and it was a great it was a great show to work on because it was so well polished and well done that it was a four day week. You show up on Monday, you do a table read, you're home, you're out of there by noon uh, before lunch usually. And Tuesday you come in, you do a table read, maybe you have a bite to eat, and then you do another table read with adjustments with rewrites, and uh, maybe you get it up on its feet a little bit. And then Wednesday you get it up on your feet block yourselves and then the camera block and then Thursday you rehearse all the camera blocking and everything else you did and then the audience comes and you shoot it and by 7 o'clock on Thursday you're driving out of the parking lot and you're done so it's a nice easy week and you know for me I was just making scale probably whatever their top of the show was and uh, which wasn't very much and those guys were making in the 6th or 7th season I think they were making $600,000 for 4 days work I mean who doesn't want to do this job so it was a it was a good environment, good writing, and uh, every and Jerry's you know Jerry's great to be around. And Jason, I known a little bit in New York, and he knew me or of me in New York. Julia, I didn't know before, but she's a actress, obviously, as we, everybody knows now. And uh, so it was just a good place to work. And what are you working on these days? Well, I'm uh, actually I'm going to rehearse. I'm doing this. There's a thing they do here called Five on Five, where they to give 20 playwrights a prompt to write a 10-minute play on, and uh, then they pick the best five of those plays, and they do readings of them. And I rehearsed all day yesterday, and I go in this afternoon, and we do a performance of it. It's very quick and easy to just try out some writers and to do reading stage readings, and one of them is very staged. The farce is very staged today. Readings of these plays, and they're not. sometimes you discover a really good writer, and sometimes you just have as much and, but mostly what I'm occupied with is uh, I went back to college uh, a year and a half ago in history, studying uh, Middle East and Central Asia. And uh, I've been taking courses steadily for two year and a half. And uh, this year I'm taking an independent study and I'm writing a 60-page research paper on the, the, a brief history of global jihad is what I'm calling it. 60 page of light re- pages of light reading try to take you all the way from Muhammad and, and when he came down out of the cave with you know, telling people he had Israel had spoken to him and created Islam all the way up through and well through whoever the next guy is by the time I turn it in in December uh, but up at least through the guy in Orlando who went into a gay nightclub and killed all those people and then called on the phone and said, I'm with ISIS. He had nothing to do with ISIS, but that's that was the banner he was waving over his head. So the ideology, the religion, the the, the, the core of Islam has fractured, the, the, the ideology of it has fractured and broken down in so many different ways. It's still there with some people, but it's also broken down to the point where some guy can go and kill 49 people with high-powered weapons and then say he did it because he believes in Allah and Muhammad. Muhammad wouldn't have patted him on the back, I can guarantee you. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This has been terrific talking with you. Well, I'm glad I could help. If you have any holes you need to fill, just let me know and we'll set up a time to talk some more. 
We are back, and we were talking about chilly scenes of winter. Now, I'm very curious. Uh, this film got a second life, and we talked about that a lot in the interviews, the whole idea of it coming out first as Head Over Heels and then coming back out as chilly scenes of winter and being much more true to the spirit of the film, let's say, than necessarily what the original ending had. And now, uh, you guys have read the book. I'm very curious. How does the book end compared to Head Over Heels and Chilly Scenes? The book ends the way that the original cut ends, which is uh, um, the very unusual thing about about this adaptation is that the, is that the author uh, Anne Beatty comes forth and says uh, uh, when when the film is released, even in in, in its original version, uh, the film does more uh, you know with, with the material than my novel did. Uh, i.e. the you know the 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 film is better than my my book which is very rare to hear from an author usually they're they're uh they're malcontents throughout the adaptation process but yeah very i mean very unusual to hear that coming from an author whose work is being adapted however uh as jones said that 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 original ending did not did not mesh with the the tone of the film that kind of emerged through uh cynthia scheider's uh edit of the film with with joan Nonetheless, that's that's kind of the way it played originally, and uh, um, and they and I think uh, United Artists, who I mean, and I'm sure you'll hear this in, in in the interviews, but I'll reiterate: there's a whole kind of stream of events where the film uh, you had Claire Townsend at Fox, who originally uh, invested kind of an interest in the project and and uh, began developing it at Fox, and then when Claire Claire Townsend left Fox, she departed for UA. Uh, right around the time of the kind of the Heaven's Gate uh, tumult. Yeah, I mean, with the whole retitle element, uh, I think you do have a studio in full panic mode uh, by the time this movie is released in, uh, in, in, in 79. You have a delayed, huge budgeted, you know, uh, using Donald Trump terms, of course, huge budgeted film project uh, that is just uh, totally running up there. You know, they're, they're, they're in the red. And so, so they need something. How, how else would they market it? They market it with uh, Charles, with the, with the windshield wipers on his glasses, you know, kind of quirky. And then they, they put the, this kind of uh, head over heels, corny, you know, font and everything else. And maybe, maybe we'll have something, I don't know, you know, so it's, so I think ultimately um, there was a kind of a, a panic impulse when uh, when they re- released the film originally, and by the time MGM is bought out by UA, you have uh, you know you have Ira Deutschman uh, and UA Classics going back and saying, oh, you know, uh, maybe we can repackage this film. And Jones saying, well, uh, you know, if I were to do anything different now, I don't like the ending that 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 we originally had. So just just you know, lop off the last bit of it, which, uh, you know, for fans of the film, I'm not sure if you're aware, the, the original ending of the Head Over Heels version is on YouTube. Uh, kind of, no, it's clearly some guy holding up an iPhone or some, like, a handy cam to, like, a, a, you know, television screen and shooting it that way. So not great quality, but you get to see the original ending in the Head Over Heels version. And uh, tonally... Even though, even though the tone is uh, kind of sweet, generally, it's kind of its own thing. You get the, you know, but it doesn't feel 
right in many ways. Like I can't imagine, I didn't see the film with that ending originally, obviously, because it wasn't available, but seeing the film originally that, or, um, afterwards that way, um, you know, I'm like watching it. And I was like, wow, this wouldn't have felt right at all. If I were seeing it for the first time as like, that was a, that was a really good decision, uh, made to, to lop off the original ending because tonally what the film and, you know, having been making films myself, the, the film begins to tell you things when you're editing it. And once it comes together, you know, it's, you know, it kind of takes on a life form of its own and uh, it begins to tell you what it needs. So I think, I think Joan, um, like, like a lot of, like a lot of filmmakers that I've talked to was always haunted by the fact that, well, we could have done this. Would that have been better? Have been better. And I think when she, when she got that kind of interest from Ira Deutschman, it was like, oh yeah, uh, well now that you're doing this, maybe we'll, maybe we'll, I'll, I'll put the new ending on and maybe we'll just, you know, as it be simple, just all you, all you got to do is cut off the last uh, five minutes or whatever. And you know, and this is the, the version I want to release. And I, I think it is more uh, true to the, to the, uh, the film's purpose. Uh, ultimately, just having him running through the park in this kind of mad dash um, and uh, no kind of wish fulfillment fantasy, uh, which, you know, no matter what, I think, I, I think if the film had, persisted in the original version with the happy ending I, I would have always perhaps been convinced that it was some type of uh wish fulfillment fantasy on charles's part uh or i would have i would have forced my theory onto it in some way because I, I, I would have never felt it was right i thought that the ending in the novel was not quite as upbeat as the original ending the head over heels ending of the film i, I thought right. that 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 um that ending was a lot more ambiguous in the novel. Like they were together, but for how long? Um, whereas I think the ending of the film is almost, it, it, it feels so tonally off if you're used to it as the chilly tins of winter cut. Um, I think, I think that maybe the critics having to see it again after already having gone through it as head over heels also probably helped as much as I liked it the first time that I saw it. Um, like most really good films, it was the second time or the third time that I saw it that I really fell in love with the film, much like uh, New York, New York, the Scorsese film, which was also re-released through, was it United Artist uh, Classics? Classics, or even something like, um, like Blade Runner. Like, I think, I think getting a second look at it, knowing the things that it does or doesn't do in relation to what your expectations are, I think, I think you can maybe cherish the, uh, the eccentric touches that maybe the first time you see it, you're expecting it to be one kind of film, and you might feel like, uh, the more offbeat uh, idiosyncratic touches maybe don't work so well as you know if you're going to see Head Over Heels, but then seeing it again, um, knowing what it does, maybe it makes some of the more offbeat touches more palatable. Because I know that it got better reviews overall coming back, and I know that you know it just it can't all just be down to a difference in the ending. All however much I think it's also maybe familiarity with what it's actually doing. I I showed. Uh, um... His recent recent history in the last year, I showed Tom Luddy um, at Telluride, who's a good friend in, in the Bay Area. Um, I'm working with him on a, on, a, on, a, on another book project. I showed him uh, a feature that I've been working for four years on, and uh, a, a, an earlier cut. And uh, um, the ending uh, just didn't work for anybody at all. It was a total like you know 
uh, you know, it just was a horrible, horrible thing. Like, you know, where we screened that ending, it got horrible responses. I remember Tom Luddy saying, I think he was quoting uh, Volker Schlondorf, who's a friend of his, uh, saying that, you know, the ending is everything. If you don't, if it doesn't lead up to something that the audience could hold on to and uh, and, the, and the kind of the, the end stroke, the movie just doesn't work. Uh, I'm not sure to what you know to what extent I agree with that, but I I do think I th- I do think that the new ending had an effect uh, on uh, on the way that people and you know because you're you're leaving an audience with with a film uh, by by the way that it ends, you know there might be some truth to it I think in some sense that you know if we're leaving Charles alone in a park uh, in a kind of a snowy landscape um, kind of alone maybe beginning to reconcile the fact that it's just never going to work is that in some ways a more satisfying conclusion than, uh, than this kind of, uh, um, Charles's every wish being fulfilled by Laura coming back and saying, Oh, you kept the key. You always, and as if to say, Oh, I always, you always knew you'd come back. Um, uh, and, uh, there was something in you, but there was something not true to life about that. So, um, so I, I, I do think that, 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 that even though the film got really great, uh, reviews orig- uh, on its original run, even though commercially it didn't fare that well, but I think critically it did quite well on the re-release. I think, I think that the, the critics who were including, including Kenneth Turin were, were looking and uh, were looking at the film again and saying, well, this is, this is an improvement, uh, on, on what was originally, you know, uh, you know, a very good film on its own, but but it leaves you with something more than just uh, just your your kind of uh, traditional kiss and and fade out type of ending, which I think the the original uh, um, ending was. I'm not sure if you if you um, agree with uh, what with uh, Tom uh, Tom Luddy quoting Volker Schlondorf and, and that the ending is everything. But and I was originally a little re- reticent about it myself, but thinking about it. It's like yeah, that's how you leave an audience, and you know if the, if the ending is, it's funny because I was talking about uh, with my 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 uh, cinematographer recently. We've been watching recent films from the last year, and uh, a lot of people have been kind of um, mussing up the, the the third act of their movies and endings. Uh, endings are kind of like good endings seem rather passe nowadays to us. I'm not sure, but it's kind of off, a, a bit off topic. But uh, yeah, in, in any event. Uh, I, I do think that the you know the new ending was t- to the benefit of the of the of the film ultimately, and I think that's why post facto it kind of appeals to uh, the, the kind of the this underground of people who know about the film and love the film uh, because I think it is truer to its its purpose. Yeah, the ending is my is one of my favorite aspects of Chili Seeds of Winter. I it's so haunting. I want to ask you, Mike, as someone who had not seen the film before, I, I take it you saw both endings before we recorded. Doing this podcast, I have read a lot of Vincent Camby uh, reviews just because there are so many archived New York Times reviews that are out there. I probably have read more of his reviews now than I ever would have before. And I'm not a big Canby fan by any stretch of the imagination, but it feels like he was kind of leading up to that in his review, saying that things didn't necessarily lead to the point where they probably should have. Uh, I might be reading too much into this, knowing that there was the second cut of the film. Uh, but watching it, I watched it with the, the chili scenes cut first, and it felt slightly abrupt, just him running and then cut and you know freeze frame on that. 
but it worked for me. You know, I, I, I don't know if I would have liked to fade out more or what, but it just was an interesting way to cut it. And, um, and then also it's weird when you look at it and you know, the poster image is him sitting on a park bench and, um, you never really, at least for me, I, I didn't really see that image in the film. So I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, that's maybe that's where he was headed to was to sit on this park bench alone. And then watching it with the original ending, it's interesting because normally in every single movie that you watch where there is this unrequited love, you're screaming with every fiber of your being that the man and the woman or, or the main characters need to be together by the end of the film. And in this case, I was like, no, no, this makes total sense that they're not together. This is a toxic relationship <laughs> at the end of the day. So I'm so glad that they're not together and seeing that, you know, you talked about how it could have been a fantasy ending because it was every, you know, it kind of reminded me of the end of Bad Lieutenant Port of Call, New Orleans, where it was like, here's everything is beautiful at the end of it. Oh, yeah, your, your, uh, parking tickets were, were revoked. And oh, yeah, that horse you bet on, that came in first. Here you go. Just everything fantastic. But, but meanwhile, Bernard Herzog is laughing at you. If, if anyone is laughing at you, I, I would want it to be Bernard Herzog. I, I would actually pay to have him wake me up in the morning just laughing on the other end of the phone, not even say anything. But I have to say that I thought that where they cut it, uh, in that re-release made so much more sense. And I was so glad that they did that, which again goes against everything that you would think of when it comes to watching essentially a romantic comedy. Right. I'm actually looking at the po- I have a poster of the film hanging up in my apartment here, uh, signed by Joan and by Griffin and by a lot of the, a lot of people involved in the film, but there is a, um, but, uh, you know, you, you, like, I mean, comparing the two kind of ad campaigns for the film, uh, I mean, there couldn't be more stark of a difference, I think. Um, I mean, I have the black and white uh, Chili Scenes of Winter poster here, um, you know, for the you know, for the 1982 re-release of the film. And if you compare that to the kind of the, the pastel-y, uh, commercial-y kind of uh, head-over-heels poster, you know, it, it was, ne- it, I mean, that type of campaign was never designed to uh to appeal to i mean you know people people would probably would have walked into you know to the film and uh they 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 would have been getting something completely different than versus what they were what they were expecting and that's usually death for a commercial death for any film i think um and uh talking i mean i mean looking uh, you know, the way that it, a studio builds a film versus the, what that film is uh, i mean look at the a classic example of this is the long goodbye um, Altman's film, where where the the original ad campaign was, uh, you know, it looked like your typical kind of pot boiler. Then and then Altman said, no, this ad campaign is totally wrong for what this movie is. And and they had they had the Mad Magazine guy go back and redesign something that was more, you know, uh, uh, in line with uh, with with what the film was. And uh, essentially, you know, I think uh, I think you know the film picked up uh, the cult that it did on its on its re-release because. Uh, I think that I think the campaign, no matter how austere, uh, was was truer to the the original uh, vision of the of the of the project. I completely agree, and I know that when this goes up online, that it will have the black and white poster with it. It won't have the goofy cartoon John Heard with the windshield wiper glasses, <laughs> which is just embarrassing to look at. Yeah, yeah, it's just you know you have an ad team saying, oh well, it's kind of quirky, so. Um, well, okay. Uh, we have gla- he wears glasses sometimes, right? 
So maybe maybe there's snow coming down, and maybe maybe we can have windshield wipers on the glasses. Oh yeah, good idea. And uh, we can have like you know uh, them like hugging below uh, next to an A-frame. Oh they, yeah yeah okay that, that that'll sell. And it's just, you know and then by, by the time you're looking at the movie, it's like and uh, people are walking out saying like that wasn't what I was expecting. That wasn't the story of a little boy and his robot. What do you mean that this is all about a a silent filmmaker from the turn of the century? Or you have the Come ultimate uh, uh, bourgeois damnation. That was different. I was going to say, I know that you already covered this uh, in the interviews, but one of the things I love about the story of Chili Sins of Winter, uh, the film, is the uh, is the production team behind it. Um, I, I, I'm a big sucker for uh, the mythology of directors and the auteur theory and all that, but I... This is one of the only times where I find the whole notion of triple threat or double threat productions like an equally compelling story. The uh, the team of Amy Robinson, Griffin Dunn, and Mark Metcalf uh, oh, producing this film. Triple and, play, uh, I think you mean. Oh, triple play. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> triple threat. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> the story of triple play I, I found so interesting. Um, and even just them leading to um, producing uh, without Mark Metcalf, but Amy Robinson and Griffin Dunn producing Baby It's You and After Hours and Running on Empty. Um, do, do you cover that story much in your book on John Micklin Silver that you're working on? I do, yes. Uh, I mean, because the way that they kind of convened, um, you know, is uh, um, because I'm 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 fascinated by uh, um, it's kind of it's interesting a film that I that I posted about on, on my Facebook this past week called uh, Dear Mister Wonderful uh, with uh, Joe Pesci and Frank Vincent and uh, um, Paul Herman and a lot of other players. It's a German uh, produced film, uh, but uh, a lot of the a lot of the crew members on that film went on to to work on baby it's you so like kind of following kind of two threads you have the you have the triple play people uh including amy robinson and and, you know later they would do film uh a film like white palace which you know i watched this uh, i watched rewatched this past month and you know um whatever is wrong with that film you know these these are kind of groomed properties i think in many ways uh i think they were really i think they i think they did have a very fine taste and and material and i think i think the fact that they gravitated towards uh chili scenes as a as a first property to kind of develop uh says a lot about their uh a very specific sensibility uh and basically how they came together and there's there's a whole kind of sequence of events that's really quite fascinating where you know you had Mark Metcalf who appears in Animal House with Peter Riegert, and you know and they were friends with uh, Amy and Griffin in New York, and and they they kind of uh, and one of them and uh, Mark uh, uh, used uh, his paycheck from Chili Scenes to kind of uh, get the get the ball rolling on on uh, I'm, I'm sorry he used his paycheck on on Animal House to get. Uh, chilly scenes rolling and uh, kind of this kind of uh, sequence of uh, events and, and this kind of circle of people that kind of um, convene to, to create the film is, yeah, is, is very much covered in the, in the book. I'm curious why Joan McLean silver, was it just your love for this film and for some of her other work that kind of stemmed you to choose her as the next filmmaker you're putting under your microscope? Um, well, it's interesting because I mean, I've long um, had a, had a, um, an intense admiration for her work coming from, uh, um, you know, I, I, I know Hester street and crossing Valancey as well. And coming from a Jewish background, you know, those are, those are films that are very true 
to my experience of, uh, I mean, I went to a, a, I went to a Lubavitch uh, yeshiva for a number of years. Her depiction of Jewish culture is very, very uh, real to me and very personal to me and very uh, uh, true to life. And uh, in a way that, I mean, oftentimes when, when uh, Jewish characters or, or Orthodox Judaism or any, any, any strain of that is depicted on the screen, I'm usually uh, screaming because it's so wrong and, and, and like they, they get something wrong that's so blatant. Uh, whereas I think Hester Street, Joan doesn't come from that, from an Orthodox background, but she does, but there is a respect and a kind of a, um, a know-how in some way, uh, you know, a savoir-faire that she has with, with that material. So, so partly it's, it's, it's out of, it's off uh, out of my love of, of chili scenes, but it's also out of a, a total amazement at what she was able to render for, Hester Street and Crossing to Lancy and uh, Lady of Fish in the Bath. Even even though uh, no one really knows as much about that film, but uh, um, she, you know, I know. And and really, like looking at a film like uh, uh, Between the Lines, I know it's a certain thing about her work that I think is uh, really in tune with uh, with characters in this um, profoundly empathetic way that I that that is uh, in my in my experience in watching movies is is rare. Um, even with the the her HBO film in the mid '80s of Finnegan Begin Again with Mary Tyler Moore and Robert Preston, um, I mean better than a lot of uh, um, theatrical films released at that time. Uh, in terms of in terms of just character development and in terms of uh, uh, the way that though the way that she uh, she renders those characters uh, with with great uh, care and. Uh, and, and 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 I think a real love for them, uh, as I think is you know is is really on on display in in, in chilly scenes of winter. Uh, so, you know, so that's kind of why. And and really the way I the, what what happened and why I, how I got to uh, you know do the book on her is that I I did I attended the the screening of uh, chilly scenes at IFC back in uh, I think it was November 2014 or around there. So she, you know, so I, I went with two friends of mine, uh, one of whom is my, my, has, has been my, my best friend for many years. And he had seen the film on video prior to that. They were up there telling the story of the making of the film. There was a couple, there were occasions, a couple occasions of, of, of forgetting things. And, and, uh, and I had read things prior to that. And I was able to kind of like whisper like, no, 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 you met him through blah, blah, blah. And like, and, and, uh, and my, my friend kind of like whispered over to me, it's like, you should be up there. Why, you know, like, you know, you, you could be tuning in. And, uh, and by the time Joan was talking about, you know, work, uh, you know, her, her travails in, in, uh, in the industry and what she had to kind of experience in order to get to where she's gotten my friend, knowing how much I loved her work kind of whispered over to me, like, you should cover her next. And like the one little comment led to a kind of a, uh, you know, and what's fascinating is that uh, I, you know, this is a really, really amazing story. Um, I tried to get in touch with her because uh, I was like, yeah, I should maybe pursue this. Uh, I, I, I probably would have something to say about her work. Um, and, um, you know, went down all these roads to kind of, you know, because it wasn't the time or place that night to kind of approach her about doing whatever. I had a couple leads and, and uh, I remember walking to work in New York one morning uh, when, you know, when I was living there and, you know, it was around like 60th and 2nd Avenue um, trying to like get my script in order because it's weird when some, some random guy calls you 
that that first minute is like excruciatingly awkward when 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 they're not expecting your call and you got to do your spiel and kind of get it. So I'm like forming my script and right precisely at that moment. This is two days after the 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 the, the, the IFC screening. Precisely at the moment I'm 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 walking to the subway going to work. Right precisely at that moment, Joan appears around the corner, just like happens to be there, and I'm like. Oh my God! Look at oh, what the oh, and I walk up and 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 I and I'm totally like <laughs> befuddled. I'm I, I don't know what to say, uh, and I'm like trying to get, I'm trying to get what I have to say out and everything. And and uh, she gave me her email that day, and uh, and and we and we 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 kind of began the process gradually. And I, later I asked her like Joan, like I was just a random dude on the street. Like what made you like? want to give me give me your email you know like um, you know i could i could have been anybody it's like you know i thought about that later and i don't know but maybe somehow i trusted you <laughs> and that's that's how it happened it was just a, a chance encounter on on a street two days after the I, the ifc screening and she vetted me with my my my, my book on on sid fury uh and kind of knew i meant business so that's that's kind of how it got going do you have a um, an end date, or do you know you know how far along are you? Oh, well, personal project? goal uh, is uh, um, I want to have a full manuscript ready by by this coming summer. Uh, and of course, you know this is the first draft, so there, there are going to be things that are added, things that are then things that are changed. But uh, um, usually, a goal. Uh, I remember I had a a summertime goal for for my book on Sydney. So uh, um, you know, normally I. Um, it's easier to work towards something if you have, uh, you know, and normally I do like to tell the, the, uh, the, the publisher or, or, uh, the agent, uh, my, my agent, if I'm, if I'm going to, uh, if I feel like delivering on a certain date, because it, it kind of keeps me in line. Cause, uh, if not, I'm, I'm, you know, I'll either, you know, say like, Oh, uh, fuck writing today. I'm going to, I'm going to go and watch a movie or oh, I'm going to take a nap and uh, I won't get anything done. So I think that, uh, I think, uh, this coming summer, I hope to have a full, full uh, uh, manuscript to deliver, and then it'll be working from there you know, to get it to a final draft, and then uh, hopefully, and then and then eventually to to a uh, publication. Uh, maybe I would say maybe I would project late 2018, uh, early early 2019. That seems so far away, but hey, that's the, you know Trump's almost out of office by that time, so great. Yeah, well, you know, uh, hopefully he'll be out of office before then. But you know, I don't, I don't know, when I, I don't know how political you want to get on your show. But yeah, all right, we are going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Hospitals all over the country, all over the world. Accident, but it's the world we live in. It's the world of the motor car. 
listen to me. Now, you get this into your mind. Nobody leaves Paris. No one. Well, we get far more opportunity to do experimental work in the field of surgery and psychiatry than your city expert. This is where the really exciting work is being done. As you know, I have two hobbies. The past, which is manifest in these lovely old country towns like Paris. Neil, get up the road! Neil! And the future, which lies with our youth. I got this one. This one's mine. You slut. You irreligious bat! Daddy, daddy. Right, well, come on, come on. Have, uh, have you country boys forgotten the old school war cry? Have you? Have you forgotten the meaning of those words? Woomerah, woomerah, babaloo, boomerang, crocodile, kookaburra, wombat, orangutan, wee-ho, way-ho, taramanga mine, quondong, billabong, gandablui pine, platypus emu, wallaby roo, ivers, brolliger, the white cockatoo, harabara, No one leaves Paris. No one. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of the cars that ate Paris. Before we go, I want to thank this week's guest co-hosts, Daniel and Bill. So, Daniel, what have you been up to lately, sir, other than working on a book about Joan Micklin Silver? Yeah, so I'm uh, shooting a, a seventh feature um, and uh, uh, shooting a feature film, kind of a total lark. Supposed to have uh, money coming in on another larger film, and uh, that didn't happen uh, pretty, pretty familiar story. Um, so, uh, so my, my, my cinematographer who's been, I've been working with for over 10 years said, uh, well, we can just do like a, a no budget quickie feature. And it was like this kind of magical moment of, oh yeah, we can do that. Right. We can do anything. Uh, so that's kind of, we're, so we're working on that now. It's an adaptation of a, of a novel from, uh, 1799. It's an American kind of American Gothic novel, uh, which we've updated, taken a lot of a lot of liberties with so i would say it's inspired by that book um and in addition to that i'm working with tom luddy and david thompson on a uh, collection of susan sontag's writing on on a cinema and uh, that should be out next year through through picador and um yeah, so i'm basically helping them um kind of aggregate collate and select which pieces uh, of hers that uh, that are going to be included in this anthology of just her writings on on the on the moving image she's already written about uh, photography of course uh, and uh, other than that yeah just promoting or uh, you know I'm about to release a film that I've been working for f- uh, four years on uh, and that'll be hitting the the festival circuit this year expecting big things from that cross crossing my fingers 
Uh, we have a lot of great, great prospects and promoting a film that I made a couple of years ago. So yeah, that's, it's, it's been pretty busy. And where can people kind of keep up with your work? Uh, well, two places now. Uh, we So uh, my own site is confluencefilm.com, C-O-N-F-L-U-E-N-C-E-F-I-L-M.com. And uh, um, I recently joined forces with six other Bay Area filmmakers, and we've kind of formed a Bay Area filmmaking uh, collective uh, together. We've made... Uh, uh, All together, we've made um, so far seven feature films, uh, which are in, in various stages of uh, post uh, or, or or release. Uh, and uh, that's that's and so you can learn more about that and us at uh, bricolagefilms.com. So that's b b r i c o l a g e f i l m s at uh, dot com. How about you, Bill? Um, well, so I, I have a podcast called Supporting Characters, uh, where I talk to different people that have um, channeled their interest in film into some kind of project or vocation, you know, blogs or podcasts or um, film critics. Um, you've been on the show, of course. And uh, actually, I've had nine past guests from Projection Booth on my show. Um, and I've actually had uh, Danny Perry, who uh, is the um, author of the Cult Movies books, where I... Uh, first learned about Chili Sins of Winter, and we do talk about Chili Sins of Winter a little bit in my interview with him. Um, that show's been on hiatus for a couple months, but it's uh, I would start recording interviews again this month, and so it should be back uh, in March. Um, you can find that show on um, iTunes or uh, at www.nowplayingnetwork.net slash supporting characters. Our network actually just added a show with another uh, Projection Booth contributor, uh, Elric Kane. Uh, he's got a show with Brian Sauer, who does the Rupert Pupkin Speaks blog called Pure Cinema Podcast. And I should probably have both of them on the show uh, sometime in 2017. Um, other than that, I contributed to a book that's included in the Arrow Films uh, limited edition Blu-ray box set for the Don Coscarelli Phantasm series. And um, I'm also interviewed in the 10th volume of the quarterly print journal Art Decades, which is available on Amazon now. And where's the best place for people to keep up with you? Right now, I don't have a site, so just find me on Facebook, and uh, I, I try to keep up uh, with everything. I post everything that I'm working on there. Thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. I'm glad that we could do these uh, two very interesting, unusual, and very provocative films. I'm, I'm really hoping that people will check these out. I'm very glad that Twilight Time is putting out jelly scenes of winter on a proper release i'm glad that uh you had stuff to do with that one daniel and uh, i really hope that eventually puzzle of a downfall child will get out onto an american label so people can see it so uh, that would be amazing i i mean i keep on uh i'll keep on uh, uh swarming uh peter becker's uh email uh and i won't uh, i'm trying to get i'm trying to get fury films out on criterion and I, I mentioned Puzzle of a Downfall Child to him, and, and uh, I'm hoping one, one of these days some label, whether it's Criterion or not, uh, just gets gets that one out there. And I was happy. I'm happy that uh, Chili Scenes of Winter is getting a Blu-ray release. I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm, I'm uh, getting my gratis copy in the next couple of days, hopefully. Uh, so looking forward to checking it out. And you know, yeah. So uh, hopefully Puzzle makes it uh, makes it on there one of these days. 
Well, thanks to everybody for listening to the show. Please go on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out some more info about today's shows, links over to where you can hear more from these great guys that have been on here, where you can pick up Daniel's book, where you can pick up the Blu-ray release of Chilly Scenes of Winter. You'll also find links over there to iTunes, where you can rate and review the Projection Booth, or go on over to our Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating helps the Projection Booth take over the world. show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.